Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Thursday morning, February the 1st. <laughs> that is. It's a dumb month, but it'll be gone before you know it. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. 843-661-0937. Josh, the Rev is scurrying, hooking his computer up because he sat on his duff at his house this morning drinking coffee. <laughs> I, Lazy I heard him tell you that. I got up so early this morning, I sat around the house and drank some coffee. <laughs> not early enough to come in on time. Not oh, early enough to, oh, to, to be set to up you. and ready to roll. Ouch. Um, don't <laughs> worry. Josh and I have it. Don't worry. And that's Josh, a... <laughs> Josh and I already have everything. I think Josh has already called Fox News. We've got guests lined up. A I busy show um, today. We've got uh, Reggie Armstrong will be with us. And then we've got John Decker. And then we've got Drew McKissick. And then we've got Patrick McLaughlin. Someone requested. And we honor the majority of requests around here, um, as Patrick will come in and talk a little bit about, or a lot about, the Murdoch situation. I kept up with the first. I didn't closely keep up with all the, I don't know, the things that have happened recently around the um, the potentially tainted jury, the uh, the meddling clerk. I mean, it sounds like a novel, but it's not. It's real world, um, <laughs> real world litigations. I guess sounds like a novel. Or it sounds like Scooby Doo when you yeah, say that. I would have I mean, gotten away with it. Yeah. One of those meddling kids. And, and I don't have any idea. You know, Patrick will give a um, a good lawyerly accounting of um, of what's going on in in the Murdoch uh, situation. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I don't know many people. We we talk sports a little bit at the beginning of our shows. Um, there is no. Uh, Gamecock basketball win to celebrate. There is no Clemson basketball win uh, to celebrate. One of the one of the most diehard Clemson fans I know. I mean, this son of a gun won't tell me he hates Carolina, but I know he does. I mean, I know he does. He won't say that because we have a respectful and long uh, enduring friendship. I mean, he's a dear friend of mine. I believe that I'm a dear friend of his. But we bumped into one another yesterday, and I said, you know, the weird thing of this is you guys kind of have to pull for us in basketball. And we kind of have to pull for you guys in basketball because it helps both of our net rankings. I mean, the, the better Clemson does, the better loss that is for the Gamecocks on the road in, in Little John. The better the Gamecocks do, the better win that is for the Tigers over the Gamecocks early in the, uh, in the season. Someone said, I heard a Gamecock enthusiast say, I wish we played them again today. Well, it'd be the same thing. I mean, it'd be a real close, hard-fought game. I mean, those two teams are not... I mean, neither are great teams, but they're both pretty good basketball teams. And I think if they play today, tomorrow, the next day, it would be down to the wire. I mean, it really would. One team would probably win several out of 10. The other team would probably win um, several out of 10. But the oddity of this, the net rankings, and I don't understand that. I mean, it's a little bit like climate change. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> One team's 21st, and you go, like, how are they 21st? And this other team's 47th. And there's some weird, weird formula um, the, the algorithms, I guess, that they use in determining, you know, what your net rating is and what potential seed you are in, um, in March Madness. I will say this, and I think this is more important than the Gamecock-Tiger rivalry. We're watching the end of the NCAA. I mean, I have been a sports fan for as long as I can remember. The NCAA has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. And I don't know if I respect it. I don't know if I feared. I don't I don't have any idea. As a sports fan, I was a Gamecock, and I knew the NCAA was over there, and they were the body that kind of controlled things, and they were the traffic cop, and, you know, they ran the joint. 
so to speak, but it's just unraveling, and it should. The sports fans should be honestly ashamed of themselves that they allowed the former model to exist for long as it did. I mean, if you look at the NCAA bylaws, and I think Alito and Kavanaugh actually read this verbatim in the uh, in the Ed O'Bannon case, uncompensated athletic performance is part of the student learning experience. I mean, think about that, guys. That's in the NCAA bylaws. Now, the NCAA is not some mystical monolith in in Ozland. I mean, the 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 NCAA is what. I mean, it's the enforcement arm of the colleges and universities that make up the National Collegiate Athletic Association. But it's not some, you know, mystical monolith way over there somewhere. They were given their power somehow, somehow, some way. That's it. They they, they are, I mean, the member institutions. I mean, they're the enforcement arm, but but the, the member institutions were okay with kids generating enormous amounts of revenue and not being compensated because in their bylaws, it was part of the student learning experience, student athlete learning experience. I'll give you the worst offense. And um, I heard this a little bit on Twitter yesterday. The worst I can think of, Todd Gurley was a great running back at Georgia. Uh, Clemson Gamecock fans will know the name Gurley because Steve Spurrier left a voicemail on Dabo Sweeney's voice. Uh, what am I, a voicemail? I don't know. He left a message on his voicemail. And Spurrier, in typical fashion, said, I, don't know. "I mean, that girly, you fellows had a had trouble with him for a for a half. We had trouble with him for a game. Anyway, I mean, that Gurley's kind of the central figure in this message that Spurrier left on Dabo's voicemail. And there's a YouTube video out there. Dabo's kind of laughing about, you know, that's just Spurrier. That's Steve, you know, just kind of walking to the beat of his own drum. But anyway, Gurley's got suspended a game at Georgia for signing a game day program." And someone gave him like 40 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever that was. I don't remember what the number was, but he got suspended a game. The NCAA said, you can't do that. You can't sign a program and be paid or compensated. But the University of Georgia could bring Todd Gurley 100 game day programs, him sign those, they put it online and sell it. I mean, where's the fairness in that? So, so, so Josh, a big college football fan, goes to Todd Gurley and says, hey, I got 40 bucks if you'll sign this. Gurley signs it. Josh gives him the 40 bucks. He's in violation of the NCAA, you know, uh, bylaws. Well, once again, the NCAA is not some mystical monolith created out of thin air. I mean, it's getting its marching orders from the member institutions. I mean, the colleges were okay with this. So the University of Georgia, I pick it on Georgia, but it'd be the same way at South Carolina or Clemson. I mean, it would be the same at Michigan or Ohio State, Texas or Texas A&M. I mean, those universities were okay. With having an enforcement arm that said, no, Todd Gurley, you can't sign that program at a McDonald's and Josh pay you 40 bucks, but the university can bring you 100 programs. You sign every one of those, and we can sell them for whatever we choose to. Guys, that's plantation-type stuff. But that really and truly is. That is the, the plantation's last stand, and I think we're beginning to see the unraveling of the NCAA. And I'll tell you where we're going to end up. And it's going to be the NCAA's fault. But once again, they're not a mystical monolith, but rather the enforcement arm of the universities. Here's what we're going to end up. We're going to end up with the athlete being an employee of the university. You think so? There's no other way. I mean, there, and there shouldn't be another way. To be honest with you, there shouldn't be another way. 
the, the Gamecock and Tiger fans fund IPTA. They fund the Gamecock Club. They do all these, they make all these enormous contributions to try and create competitive programs and enhance the livelihoods of student athletes. Some is altruistic. Some is greed. I mean, some is motivation by winning. Some is a loyalty to the university. I mean, this university gave me an education that led me to be a business person. Uh, I made a lot of money. I feel beholden in some way, shape, or form to Clemson or Carolina. I mean, that, that's, that, there's some altruism in that. But it's, it's, you can't go back to those same fans and say, hey, some rules got changed. These players have to be paid, but we don't think it's our pace to pl- play, uh, place to pay them. Can you give us more money, fans? I mean, I know you're funding the Uptown, the Gamecock Club. I mean, we're, we're, you're giving us enormous amounts of money. We've done all these wonderful things. Big donors, small donors, a lot of donors, few donors. We've done all these wonderful things. But donors, we need one more thing. You know these athletes that generate all this enormous profit and proceeds that we get a share of? We don't want to pay them. I mean, the rules have changed. Somebody's got to pay them. And they can get paid now. But we'd rather those same fans pull a little more money out of their pocket and pay those athletes that generate enormous. Let me ask you a question, Rev. Do you get a check if the Gamecocks win a national championship? (laughs) I I do not. Do you get a check as a fan if the SEC television revenue increases? (laughs) I don't get to participate Do you get a check, my friend, if the Gamecocks make a 14 college foot? Let me ask Clemson fans. I mean, do you know how much money the university made as as being in one of those? How many checks did you get for making an investment? You made a wise investment in a very profitable stock, Clemson football. I mean, it's still good, but it was great. I mean, it was great. It was as good as there was in all of the world. What did you get for that other than cheering for a winning program? It's just, it, it's, it's odd that we allowed. And I'll tell you, if you're interested in this, go back and read the NIL lawsuit the Supreme Court heard and listen to what Kavanaugh said. I mean, Kavanaugh basically said it's a cartel and criminal enterprise. I mean, the, the bylaws, I mean, he read the bylaws in the Supreme Court, uncompensated athletic performance as part of the student learning experience. Wow. It's almost like say that out loud. It, 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 say it out loud. I mean, it's absurd that sports fans all over the country allowed. Once again, what is the NCAA? It's the enforcement arm of the member institutions. So Gamecock Tiger fans, the hierarchy of your universities were okay with that. They can say what they'd like. That they, they can, they can, you know, flip and flop and say one thing and say another. But they were member institutions of the NCAA, and the NCAA enforced the laws and bylaws that they blessed. And it was a travesty that we allowed universities to collect enormous amounts of money, coaches to be paid unbelievable salaries, and the student athlete was told, "Well, you're getting that education." And your dorm rooms are a little nicer than everybody else's. And you get to go eat lunch. I mean, I remember at Walford, I got to go eat lunch an hour before the general student body, and we got all the jello we wanted. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, <laughs> Whoa. but that, but, but that nice. was back in the day. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what Johnny Roscoe made his defense coordinator, uh, Rick Gilstrap made his head coach at Walford. I mean, it, it wasn't a lot. So there was some proportionality to that deal. But, but the day that college athletics became big business, that would be kind of an interesting debate for somebody like the bad boy to have. At what moment did college athletics become big business? 
I mean, I, I don't know that. I mean, at what moment did we think Trump may have a chance to win the, the presidential election? I mean, there was a mo- at what moment did amateur college athletics become big business? 843-661. That's my rant about. But, I mean, it, no, really, I believe that within five years, the football players at Clemson, the football players at South Carolina, the basketball players at Clemson, the basketball players at South Carolina, um, will be employees of the university. I mean, I think it's, uh, didn't I read yesterday about a lawsuit, Virginia and Tennessee, uh, suing the NCAA antitrust type? I mean, the NCAA basically says, hey, I know NIL exists, but there's a certain way we allow NIL to exist. And Virginia basically, that's the university founded by Thomas Jefferson, they were a little more diplomatic (laughs) in their their lawsuit uh, to the NCAA. The Tennessee lawsuit doesn't say this verbatim, but, it, I mean, once again, um, with all due respect to our good friend Dr. Will Bolt, Virginia has an academic reputation, um, a, a bit elitist. I mean, it is. Charlottesville is a, a little bit elitist. Uh, I hear some of these ACC, a little bit, really? A little <laughs> bit? Uh, anyway, it's, a, it's a, um, a highly regarded academic institution, UVA is. Tennessee is a kind of a football factory disguising itself as a college. The UVA lawsuit is very measured, well thought out, diplomatic. The Tennessee lawsuit basically says, NCAA, you can kiss our big orange ass. <laughs> we do things the way we want to do things in Knoxville. And uh, and now that it's the wild, wild west, there's very little or nothing you can do about it. When did college athletics become big business? Was there one moment? Was there one something or other that happened that we all kind of look back on and say, that's the moment. I mean, that's when college athletics became a huge, huge business. Maybe when the first coach's deal was made public and you thought, whoa, a coach is getting paid. Now, that, that may have been when they crossed the million-dollar threshold or the $5 million threshold. Or, or some television deal. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't have any I remember as a young person, Andy Messersmith signed a contract, I think it was the Dodgers. I think Andy Messersmith signed a contract with the Dodgers. I was a kid. I mean, I wasn't a little boy. I mean, I was a kid. But I remember reading a million dollars. I'm like, wow, a million dollars to play baseball? I mean, that's impossible. There's not that much money in the world, especially to pay a baseball player. But I still remember that. I mean, I still remember Andy Messersmith getting a contract for over a million dollars to play baseball. And I just thought, I mean, wow. I mean, I want to be a baseball player was the first thing I thought. Right. But then I was like, I mean, there can't be that much money in the world. I mean, collectively, there's not a million dollars in the world. My dad had 600, you know, <laughs> 600 bucks or something like that. The way a million dollars doesn't even exist. Uh, 843-661-0937. See, that's back when a million dollars was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> not so much anymore. Take a break. Boone Pickens' book, you know what it was named, Josh? The first billion was the hardest to make. <laughs> I mean, that's the name of the book. Right. The first billion was the hardest to make. Take a break. <laughs> back at a few. Rev may have given a better example of the corruption within the NCAA or the bylaws that allowed them to basically, I mean, they were a cartel. I mean, they ran the place uh, like, like cartels run, run things. But I was talking about Todd Gurley, you know, getting a, um, some person came up to Gurley, asked him to sign a program. He signed the game day program. That was an NCAA violation. He was suspended for a game. Rev gave a better example. Remember Leonard Fournette of LSU? 
I mean, he was a great, great running back, kind of a freak, big, fast guy, went to the NFL, had a good career, not a great career, but a good career. Um, we moved a home game at williams Bryce to Baton Rouge for the hurricane. The hurricane hit. Uh, they were talking about distressing law enforcement assets and whatnot. They had a big conference call with the SEC. All the universities kind of pitched in and said, what can we do to help? Um, and anyway, the game that was scheduled to be played in Williams-Brice was moved to the real Death Valley in Baton Rouge. Leonard Fournette autographed a jersey. I mean, he was a Heisman Trophy candidate. He was a big deal. He autographed an LSU jersey and donated it to Hurricane Relief. I mean, the money was going to try to do a good deed, trying to be, a, a you know, I, I, I don't know, a good citizen yeah. and help people who were in in a bad place. With and a great um, gesture because, I mean, obviously we were his opponents in the game, and I just thought that was a cool moment. But that was also the moment I went, really? This is what? This is how this works? I mean, it was a direct violation of NCAA policy. He got in trouble. Yeah, got in, got in trouble. I don't think he got suspended, but he got reprimanded, had to sit down and write a letter of an apology, and LSU had to investigate uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the kid signed his jersey, put it online. The proceeds went to Hurricane Relief in South Carolina, and the NCAA said you cannot do that. So Rev said, so it's not a better model. I'm mean, the way I've talked about these collectives, Garnet Trust, and whatever the Clemson um, name is. It's not a better model for them to pay the kid and the kid not be an employee of the university. I would just ask this. I mean, how many other big businesses operate that way? I mean, why should that be any different? I mean, why should the universities get cover when IBM doesn't, Microsoft doesn't, community broadcasters don't? I mean, it's an arrangement. It's an employer-employee relationship. And um, the, the big grievance I have, Rev, is the donors fund the university's programs, and, and you go back to the donors and fans and say, hey, we've got to pay players now, but we don't want to do it without our money. Will you, you know, will you help us raise more money? And Garnet Trust is one that I'm familiar with. I don't, I don't care if you leave that third party entity in place. I mean, that, that, that doesn't really matter to me. I'll let the courts decide and I trust and, you know, the right to organize and all these other, I mean, that's labor laws. I'll let them decide that. My problem is let's say Garnet Trust and the Clemson collective are still out soliciting contributions and their budgets are based on what they raise. In other words, Ohio State's got a bigger alumni. Texas has more money. They've got a $10 million collective. Carolina and Clemson have $5 million collectives. They're at a disadvantage. I think the university should be allowed to take some of the television revenue and give directly to the collective. I mean, that, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. There shouldn't be new money. We shouldn't have to go out and beg donors and fans for more money. There's enough damn money there now. I mean, the, the SEC TV deal, you ready? A billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, the Big Ten TV deal, billion dollars. See, that's I mean, when you realize. I mean, you, you, can find, big business. you can find $10 million to fund a collective to be competitive in college athletics. Now, I don't know what that number is. Is it $5 million, $10 million, whatever that is, it's an arbitrary number. But I just don't think the fans should be expected to pony up again to pay college football players that have – generated enormous revenues for a generation that the universities have enjoyed the benefit of. And you just don't go back to the fans and say, Hey, we need you again. One last time. I mean, can we raise 10 million to be competitive in college football? If I'm a fan, I'm going to, Hey, all that money y'all been collecting, man. You hadn't, I mean, if I mean, I was in the truck body business, the best example I can give you that we made some money. I mean, we made some money building truck beds. 
We'd have made a bunch of money if I didn't have to pay welders. We'd have made a lot of money if I didn't have to pay truck drivers. I mean, I can assure you of that. I mean, I would have been the business man of the year every year. <laughs> I mean, if I'm building truck beds and my model says, hey, all those welders you've got, you don't have to pay them. All those truck drivers you've got, you don't have to pay them. I mean, I'm putting my bow tie on every year and going to the Chamber of Commerce luncheon to be honored as the business person of the year. <laughs> How does he do it? I mean, he's a genius. How does he do it? Good land. I mean, that guy is such a, a, I mean, he's a special dude. He's a generational talent when it comes to business. And I get up and stand, you know, I want to, I want to thank the chamber for awarding me my 10th consecutive businessman of the year award. But I got I to gotta be honest with you. I mean, I, I'm a little bit guilty standing up here for the 10th consecutive year. In my truck body building business, I've got somebody else paying my welders. I've got somebody else paying my, my truck drivers. I've got somebody else paying my painters. I'm not a business guru. I've just got a big, big advantage that most don't. <laughs> and that's what the universities had. They're not rocket scientists. They were fleecing the employee being the student athlete. And, and just think, if you could cut a deal and say, have ESPN come in there and broadcast you guys making your truck beds and give you $100 million for it, think about how great that'd be there. Yeah. I mean, it, you, know, <laughs> you want to you you really put on national television the welders that I'm not paying well, truck beds together. <laughs> Come on in. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Mike and Darlington. Let's go there. Hey, Mike. Uh, good morning. I tell you that uh, that's a story. But athletes have been getting screwed for years. I mean, I, I remember talking with Harry Bird, and he. Uh, I think the best year he ever had uh, was like uh, twenty five, twenty five thousand a year, and uh, that. Uh, in the off season, he came back down, uh, you know, came home and cut pulp wood and timber and uh, made a little extra money there. Cause, and uh, they, and uh, until they, the Yankees found out about it, and I, I think he's still with the Yankees or the maybe he was with the White Sox. But uh, they found out about it and said, hey, you can't be doing that. We got an insurance policy. You, that's dangerous work, cutting <laughs> cutting down uh, trees and such. And he had to quit, and uh, he said he got. Uh, they didn't give him any more money. They just told him he couldn't do that anymore, and, and there he went. But um, he did. He wasn't able to put away the kind of money you would think he'd put away. I mean, that uh, when I knew him, he was running a motor grader for the county, and uh, that that is is. But he was a great guy. I personally, I thought he was. But the thing is, uh, they these people, they, I think, and this is something I've thought since I was in high school, and I, uh, I, I think I uh, read part of Moby Dick and tried to fake a book report on it uh, and <laughs> something. But uh, anyway, I, I saw where they had shares in the whaling ship, and I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful if you just had shares in uh Everything like uh, you could, uh, if you uh, instead of buying a ticket to the Clemson game or the Carolina game, you bought a share or a percentage of a share, whatever that might be, just a tiny share, and you could have shares in your sports teams or whatever and make it a little more interesting. But uh, that was just craziness. But I wanted to really comment on yesterday when y'all were talking about Trump and the Trump derangement syndrome. 
and the way he's just been, they, they're just trying to run him to ground any way they can. That uh, is kind of like the Democrat Party is like a dog. It's a, it, the, 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 the people that, that dislike Trump, despise Trump, oh, he's the worst thing. He's beyond Hitler. He's beyond the Antichrist. He's beyond it all. He he's the he's the death star of the of, of creation. If we let him become president, these people are mad. They are they they got a, a, a certain little screw that's not connected anymore. It popped out some time ago, and they and uh, they're they're like a dog chasing a tractor trailer uh, truck. And they're about to catch them, uh, them uh, the wheels on the tractor, but they don't see them trailer wheels coming up behind them is going to squash them flat. And uh, I think that's a that's a problem with the, the these people. I don't know what it is. It, it's a phenomena, a, a kind of hysteria that no one really an, anticipated. And I'm wondering. What in the world? These people are so desperate to uh, oppose Trump, whether it's in their interest or not. It's like they would be willingly set themselves on fire just to uh, just to, uh, annoy Trump, keep him up at night or whatever. They, they, I've never seen anything quite like it in my time. Now, I've read about things and I've seen things like that, and I've seen charismatic people. Like we've had charismatic people, I, I've seen I've seen a couple of them that could tell people what to do, and they would do it. Uh, uh, John Jenrette comes to mind. I saw him at a fundraiser for Carter when he was uh, first starting to run. But anyway, thank you. Thank, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, and uh, I mean, I actually wrote down this morning. On on one side is justice. There's a big line on my notebook. On the other side is get Trump. I mean, justice. Get Trump. I mean, there's a lot of distance between justice and getting Trump. When does justice start being justice and become getting Trump? I mean, that's what the voters are really. I mean, I think they're on to it. I mean, I think the polls clearly show they're on to it. I'm crazy enough to say that the more of the trials the voters see, the better it is, better chance it is Trump gets reelected. I mean, Willis has to respond to judge, what's his name, uh, Judge Scott McAfee, by noon tomorrow, I think, about some of the allegations the Trump team are talking about improprieties and, you know, uh, should she recuse herself from the trial? I saw where some subpoenas were issued. Well, I mean, there, there, there's, there's some legal goings-on happening now, and she's got until tomorrow. Take a load off fine. He's got until tomorrow <laughs> to make a determination about whether she's going to respond or not. That'll be interesting. Uh, to watch this. But once again, I don't believe we need the tri- trials unraveling. I mean, I know Trump would rather them be done with to kind of move on. But I, I think his political prospects are better when he's in when he's in the crosshairs because I, pe- I don't believe the majority of Americans believe for a second it's about justice. I think most Americans believe it's all about getting Trump. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. William in Marlborough County. Good morning. Good morning, Dave. Ken. You know, I know everybody's seen the thing on news where the migrants attack the police officers. Well, wait, did they start? I just had a buddy come home from New York that does solar panels. 
they had to shut down their project out there because the migrants were stealing their tools and breaking in their trucks and stuff like that. So he lost his job. He had to come home. And uh, our, our government ain't doing nothing about it. And the Democrats, as far as the Democratic people, if you vote Democrat this year, uh, you voting for evil. And that's the bottom line. And all these people running around here talking about how spank the manners they are, and they Democrats, but they vote for Democrats. I don't want to hear that. What I want to hear out of St. Demonious people is uh, let's vote evil out and vote good in. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. You know, one of the issues in Iowa that, that caught me off guard was immigration was a bigger issue than inflation. It was not the economy. They were talking about inflation, and immigration was 34%. Inflation was 32%. I just never imagined that immigration would exceed inflation when it comes to sentiment of voters but here's why and i'm convinced you and i aren't living it like some of these other uh, people are in the city of denver in the city of chicago in the city of new york i mean these major and i want to congratulate governor abbott in texas i mean i think he has been just just one of the um the stalwarts of how to deal with the um the failure of our federal government to secure the border i mean just Rent buses, lease buses, put migrants on buses. Well, let's be honest. Put illegal immigrants on buses and send them to sanctuary cities. I mean, they're they're talking the talk. Let's see if they walk the walk. The city of Denver is going to end up with about a $40 million deficit because of the expenditures taking care of the illegal immigrants. And I'm not calling them migrants. I mean, I, I refuse to do that. It's illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. There's a difference. Someone texted me yesterday, Josh, when you said immigration zero, and you were being a bit um, tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I know you were, but someone said, well, I'm not I'm not totally opposed to immigration, but illegal immigration, zero. I'm with you. I mean, illegal means illegal. That's, you're breaking the law. You're not allowed to come into the country um, this way. You know, the great question that our nation will struggle with at some point in time is the open borders of the of the Biden administration, Mayorkas in particular, I mean, he's an open border zealot. I don't know that Biden's an open border zealot. Biden's an old man who desperately wanted to be president, and the Obama regime kind of got him in there, put him in a corner, um, and probably tell him when to go to bed, tell him when to get up, tell him what to say, tell him what to do. But, but Mayorkas is Obama's pick. I mean, it, it's the globalist. It's the open borders. It's the, the John Lennon. Imagine there are no... Heaven and hell. There are no nations. I mean, we're all in this thing um, together. I've seen more text recently from Democrats in Colombia, and I want to talk to Jay Phillip and Mike about this. You know, the um, the 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 uh, there, there's a nutrition um, subsidy. There's a, there's a supplemental for the from the federal government the state can accept or not, and it you know it's it's breakfast and meal pro- nutrition programs in public schools. Well, the Democrats are saying. You know, we need to feed our children. And I, that, that concerns me, guys, that that's such a prevalent attitude within the Democrat Party. We don't have children. You have children. I have children. Revs have children. I mean, Revs' kids aren't our kids. I mean, I think Revs knows there's nothing I would do. I mean, his kid needs me. I mean, I'm, I'm here. But, but we need to feed our children. No, Rev needs to feed his kid. Ken needs to feed his kid. But there's some individualism there, some personal responsibility and accountability that plays into this. And the Democrats in South Carolina, 
I mean, it's kind of the talking point. We're going to let our children go hungry. I'm not. Are you, Rev? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, it's, we're just, we're, that's such in violation of one of the principal codes of America, which is personal responsibility and, and a willingness to be productive and independent and free of government. I mean, I don't need the government to help me. I, I'll take care of my own. But we've got this mindset, and it's, so, it's not extreme. I mean, it's not out of the mainstream. That, that is the mainstream political narrative of the Democrats in, in Columbia. I'm not talking about Washington. I'm talking about Columbia, South Carolina. Good people, decent people. I mean, I know two of the people who tweeted that. You know, Governor McMaster's not going to let us take care of our children. We need to feed our children. What, what does that say? I mean, what do you hear? Maybe I'm hearing something there that, that isn't. We need to feed our children. That, that's such a collective phrase. I mean, that's socialism. We need to feed our children. And Governor McMaster is impeding our ability to feed our children. So government is the, the vessel or conduit or vehicle of which you feed your kid? You can't feed your kid without a government program? I mean, dare I say, stop having kids. I mean, if you can't feed your kid, if you need us to feed your kid for you, you have no business having a child. That needs to be the narrative, but that's not the narrative. McMaster's the boogeyman because he's getting in the way of a federal program that'll stop parents from feeding their children. That's just so bizarre. Collectivist, socialist, communist in principle. Take a break. Back in a few. You could take my last comments and say, so he doesn't care about the common good, doesn't care about his fellow man, doesn't believe in we're kind of all in this thing together. I do in certain situations. If Rev's home burns down, he needs the village. I mean, Josh needs to help Rev. I need to help Rev. All of Rev's friends, church, associates need to help Rev. If we have a hurricane, a tornado, and somebody's life is devastated, we need to lift one another up. But feeding your kid is a basic principle. That's not recovering from a hurricane. That's not getting a cancer diagnosis that can't work for the next two or three years. There are circumstances and events in our life that require us to accept the generosity of others. That, that, that has always been a part of the human experience. But to believe it's the government's job to provide meals for your kids? Really? I mean, I think that we all expect the government in some way, shape, or form to help us out of a fix. And I'm talking about when a hurricane devastates a state and we look to FEMA, we look to some sort of emergency management and relief, and we look to, to charities and churches and, and food banks. And I mean, we're, we're kind of all in this thing together at the time. But when you have a kid and part of your plan and caring for that kid is the hopes that the government will continue to fund a program to make sure your kid is fed. I mean, that, that's absurd. We need a village when life throws us a big curveball. Having a baby and, and knowing you got to take care of it, that ain't a big curveball. I mean, that's a fastball down the middle of the plate. When you have that kid, it's your job to be responsible for taking care of that kid or don't have the kid. Let's go to the phone. Terry in Lake City. Morning. Hey, good morning, Ken. You got my mind bouncing back and forth here with what you brought up and with the illegal aliens. Um I kind of mixed up here in my mind, but um, illegal aliens, 
you know, they, you talk about bringing them in and they put them in these sanctuary cities. They're not going to stay there. Eventually, small town USA is going to be dealing with these guys. I mean, Trump's, from what I understand, is talking about having a mass deportation. What are they going to do? Have the military go town to town, community to community, rounding up and shipping them back out? I mean, I just don't know how financially us as a country is going to be able to handle all this, even all the way down to feeding somebody else's children. I agree with you 100,000%. It should not be my responsibility to feed my neighbor's kids unless, like you say, there's a, some, some real bad something come up. But it's not my responsibility to do that. I mean, it's, there's no consequences. People make decisions. They either have a child. They don't take care of them. There's no consequences. I mean, we're going to step in and take care of them. Meanwhile, they're dri- you know, driving around in, in cars they can't afford to begin with, cell phones they shouldn't have, but yet they, they are, are hoping somebody else feeds and clothes some, their kids. I mean, 100,000% agree with you, kid. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate that. I mean, if I were a member of Congress, I mean, that's scary, but if I were a member of Congress and I was, you know, I was part of making a decision about what immigration policy is going to be in America. There are two things that have to be in there, or I'm not supporting. There has to be securing the border, and there has to be mass deportation. I'm sorry. I mean, that's, you, you can't let that many people who we don't have any accountings of who that we got to go find. I mean, do you round them all up? No. I mean, odds are you'll never find everybody who's here illegally. But that should be part of the plan. Mass deportation has to be a part of immigration policy moving forward. But you've got a open border zealot and Mayorkas in charge. Take a break. Back in a few. Big advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial member FINRA SIPC. This morning's edition of the Armstrong Minutes is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group, dedicated to growing and protecting your wealth. We're back, 843-661-0937, Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing great. How about yourself, Ken? So so can I have more than a minute of your time today? Yes, sir. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about some things, but I want, to, I, want, I want to get your take on No, no, Reggie, I was involved in a project. Yes, sir. And all the suits mm-hmm. said one thing. <laughs> and all the suits... We're never right. Mm-hmm. So we finally started going to the guy wearing the hard hat, boots mm-hmm. on the ground, yep. and he gave us a much more yep. honest accounting of what's happening. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about economic slowdowns or right. corrections in the market, obviously the suits have the loudest voice. Sure. And they've earned the right to yep. have the loudest sure. voice. But should we at times listen to what some of these companies are saying mm-hmm. without Wall Street saying it for them? I'm talking yeah, yeah. about – I've got several friends in manufacturing, mm-hmm. yep. and they're painting a little bit of a more gloomy picture mm-hmm. than some of the CNBC and Bloomberg crowd. H- how do we merge yeah. what, what, what the experts are saying and yeah. what boots on the ground say? Yeah. I, I've always been – it's a great question, Ken, and I've always been one who's you – know, got to be wary what the, just what the data says without having a little bit of a gut check. Now, you have to be careful about assuming – Hey, because things are slower or faster at Nucor or Sunoco, that's representative of the entire industry of their industry or the entire manufacturing industry. But if you're if if some of the data, for example, manufacturing as measured by the ISM index has been in contraction for 14 months in a row. 
it you know 50 is the demarcation line of of growth 50 and above is growth it's been between 46 and 49 usually, most of the time 46 to 47 for 14 months ask one of my friends who and, and some clients who work at Sunoco for example oh yeah things are pretty slow so it does help to have a little bit of that what what is going on you know there are surveys for example of small business owners small measuring small business optimism small business owners usually got a pretty good idea of what's going on in in their community and in their line of business. So I agree with you, Ken. When we make these determinations, mm -hmm. I mean, you help us kind of sort through, okay, yeah. here's Mnuchin saying there's a major correction coming. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's an expert, but he's not God almighty. I mean, he doesn't have yeah. all the sovereign knowledge of what happens and will happen. But, but Reggie, I woke up one day much older than I thought I was going to ever get. I mean, I was convinced I'd stay 25 the rest of my life <laughs> and timing was the least of my concerns. Yep. I mean, it didn't matter to yeah. me. When do we start thinking about timing? How important is timing? Some of sure. your ads are cycles of the market. Yeah, it takes this sure. much gain to, yeah. to get that much return. But but how do we consider? We, we just talked about the, the guy with the hard hat and the yeah. suit. Timing mm -hmm. is still a big part of making these decisions. Uh, absolutely. And <laughs> although what you just mentioned about you didn't think you'd get this old reminded me. I think it was, was it Groucho Marx, Rev, that said, I, if I'd known I'd you know, I'd get this old. I'd taken better care of myself, <laughs> right. or, or something Mickey, like that. Mickey Mantle said something similar. Okay, to that. okay maybe it's him. I don't remember who said what. Um, no, it's it's you know when we're looking at things, and we're concerned about a slowdown because we have to remember, you know, a year ago, three about three quarters of economists were convinced there was a recession in 2023. Didn't happen. Right now, very few think there's going to be a recession. Maybe the opposite happens again, you know, going back to what you were saying about, about, about Mnuchin. And so, but as investors, when we talk to our clients about what's going on, you do have to take those things into consideration. Valuation of the market, where are we likely in the economic cycle? Those are all important, but we also have to keep in mind not only when we need the money, but also how time diversifies risk. And here's what I mean by that. In any one year, this, now th these statistics, folks, are from 1950 through 2023, uh, provided by J.P. Morgan, I picked, you know, from their guide to the markets. And uh, number one, number two, you can't invest in an index directly. So, uh, you know, in past performance, there's no guarantee of future results. There, I, I did all my disclosures, Rev. I'm good, I think. <laughs> all right. So let's say since 1950, what's the worst 12-month period in the S&P 500? About negative 39%. Worst 12-month period. Okay, that doesn't mean worse top to bottom, but just worse twelve month period. That's that's what scares people. That's what keeps people up at night, right? I mean, like, wow, I, my hundred thousand could go below sixty thousand. That's scary. The best year is forty seven percent. Now, some people say, well, I'll diversify with bonds. Their worst year was negative thirteen percent. That was last year. Worst year since nineteen fifty. Best year, believe it or not, forty three percent. So sometimes bonds do pretty well. Um, now, we'll get to the averages in a moment, but watch what happens as soon as you get to a five-year period. Because if you're not willing to hold investments for five years, you're not investing, you're speculating. So let's say you put your money in, you've got it in the market, and you're scared you're going to lose a bunch of money, but you don't really need it for five years, uh, and probably longer, but let's just stick with five. The worst one-year rate of return in any five-year period since 1950 in the S&P 500 is negative 3%. Time takes away a lot of that risk. You get to 10 years, it's only negative one. 
So that you can buy stocks and be negative over 10 years. So therefore, be careful when you need the money. But if you're in your young age to middle age, maybe not so much. And then once you get to 20 years, the worst 20-year period is positive 6%. Yeah, so now let's take a look at the averages. What do we, what have bonds investments? What again? This is aggregate index. What what have they averaged over in a, uh, over a, a, a typical twenty you know twenty year period? Average twenty year period about five and a half percent. Stocks eleven point two since nineteen fifty. What does that mean in real money? You put in a hundred thousand dollars in all bonds, you you you're going to end up with almost two hundred ninety three thousand dollars. You put it on all stocks. 838 and some change. 838,000, that's pretty good money. Are you willing to take a little bit of short-term risk if you don't need the money for 20 years or at least all of it? And let's say you're in between. You're like, well, I can't afford to have it all stocks because if we get another 1929, I can't survive that. So let's say you decide you're going to put 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds. Well, then your worst one-year period is negative 20%. Your worst 20-year period is positive 5 and that hundred thousand averages nine point three, and that hundred thousand is a little bit, almost five hundred ninety-one thousand dollars. A little bit of a blend there. So the point is, is time can take away a lot of the short-term risk of stocks. At the same time, what's dangerous is I need the money in twenty twenty-five to start paying me X percent, and you have it all in stocks. Well. You better be careful with that. So that's the kind of stuff we discuss as we put portfolios together for clients. And and I, I would imagine I would ima- imagine it's um I mean obviously you've told me this before it's their money. Mm-hmm. I mean I'm trying to do the best I can mm-hmm. to give advice and and help them execute a plan. But you do have to consider what age you are and what your expectations sure. are. Well, I was I was with some clients the other day. They're in they're they're, they're just turning fifty which normally would be, hey, you've got 10 to 15 years for retirement, but they actually want to be, they, they believe they want to retire in five years to 55. They want to do early retirement. So their time frame is really less to do with age and when they're going to have to start drawing out of the money. you know. And some of their monies, in fact, the majority of their monies are in retirement accounts that they can't touch till they're 59 and a half. So how, how do you square that circle? That's a lot of what we do. And, and someone that wants to retire 55, 65, or 75, they need advice. That's what you do. How can someone, no matter how old or young you are, reach out to Armstrong yeah. Wealth and get some uh, some advice? Sure. Uh, 843-292-9997, or you can check us out at armstrongwealth.com first if you like. Thank you, sir. All right. Appreciate it, guys. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at 1807 West Devon Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. I've always wondered, who do you trust when it comes to, you know, the advice about the economy? And, I mean, I guess nobody but everybody, everybody but nobody um, to some degree, Steve Mnuchin yesterday on Brett Baer's show, he's the former Treasury Secretary under under Donald Trump. Mnuchin said that some of the data he reads, and he's like Reggie, but he's data driven. Um, and I think you've got to accept the data. You you can't dismiss or discount the data, but but the data is not the entire story. Um, the problem, I mean, I I remember being in Columbia when the cross fiasco, when we became aware of what was happening at that nuclear facility 
And I mean, I, I would argue it wasn't my baby, but I would argue that those who, I mean, that, that it was their baby. I would argue they knew before they came clean. I mean, they knew this thing was not going well. They knew this thing uh, had issues. They knew this thing was getting to be a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. I mean, it ended up being a monstrosity of a problem. But I remember, and, and I'll leave his name in confidence because he told me in confidence, I can remember one day at the state house, one of my friendly senators came to me and we were talking about it. And he said, this thing's going to be a far bigger, you know what, than you can imagine. What do you mean, Senator? He said, well, I went and spoke. He said, I spent about a half day on the ground at the, um, at the work site. And the supervisors say nothing's going as planned. Uh, the, the construction workers say nothing's going as planned. The, con- the concrete engineer says nothing's going on as planned. The executives were saying, yeah, we're a bit behind. Uh, you know, the political power was saying, yeah, we're a bit behind. This thing, you know, may not work exactly as we anticipated. But he said, I spent a day on the ground talking to people who build these things, have built these things, understand budgets, understand um, time frames, understand calendars and schedules. And they said that we, this is, I mean, it's desperate. I mean, it, it's truly and sincerely desperate. And, um, and I just think you can't dismiss those people. And the small business owners in America today, I would argue, are more negative than I've ever seen them. I mean, I really oh, believe really? that. I mean, it's just like, well, I mean, it's post-COVID. And they just had their butts whipped in COVID. And I don't know that they've recovered. I don't know that the, the older generation of business owners will recover from the impact. And, and um, I don't know the, 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 the dramatic effect COVID had on, on small business. I mean, it had an effect on all business, but, but a lot of businesses in bed with the government. Um, I do know this, this is concerning to me. And Jamie Dimon kind of talked about this. I know deposits in banks are down across the state, really across America. The, the COVID money. Remember we talked, um, I mean, this is where we get a bit smart boy. $8.9 billion made its way to South Carolina. $6.3 billion of the $8.9 billion were given to public sector enterprises, school districts, local governments, state governments, uh, whatever. I mean, there, 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 there were kind of a myriad of government agencies that got funds. They didn't really need the money, so they parked the money in deposits in banks. And all of a sudden, the, the money had restrictions. You got to spend this money by the end of 23 or 24, whatever that calendar. I mean, it was some of the money, one date, some of the I mean, CARES and American Rescue Plan. And I mean, it had different dates, but you got to do something with this money by this date. And it seems to me that Jamie Dimon may have missed how much economic activity some of those public entities could provide to the economy. In other words, if a school district got an extra $20 million and the money sits in the bank, sits in the bank, sits in the bank, they're about to lose the right to spend that money, so they decide to build something. Well, that's economic activity. I mean, the school district, when they hire a construction company, I mean, it's not a public construction company. It's a private company, and I think we're at the end of that. I mean, I think we're at the end of the public sector spending the COVID money and the private sector enjoying the benefit of that economic activity. I mean, I've always said it's smoke and mirrors. I mean, the entire, you know, 15 to $22 trillion M2 money supply increase, I mean, that was all smoke and mirrors. And I think everything we're doing now is smoke and mirrors. 
I, I read, I mean, Reggie would, would know more about this than I do. I read something in the Wall Street Journal several months ago. Uh, it was a calculus done by some really smart economists and kind of mathematicians, and they were arguing that if you take deficit spending out of the equation, we've had neutral GDP growth, that all the GDP growth we've enjoyed might have been the last 15 or 20 years. It was since 2008, since quantitative easing. So that would be 16 years. All GDP growth in the American economy is deficit-induced. I mean, it came from the government spending about a trillion dollars a year. It doesn't have. And during COVID, <laughs> spending about $7 trillion that it didn't um, have. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. Thursday morning, roughly 725, means John Decker, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent. John Decker is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. I'm uh, walking on the South Lawn right now, ready to get into a motorcade with President Biden. He's heading over to the Capitol this morning uh, to take part in the National Prayer Breakfast at the Capitol. So that's uh, what I'm on my way to do this morning, and uh, hope you're having a great Thursday. We are having a good day. We're not on the South Lawn, mind you, but we <laughs> well, are having we, we are having a good nice. day. Um, Biden will be traveling to Michigan today. I mean, obviously, that's a swing state. That's an important state for both Donald Trump and um, Joe Biden. Do we have any idea what sort of remarks he makes? I mean, obviously, it's political in nature. But what do you make of that trip, John? Yeah, this is a campaign trip, uh, and that's who's getting billed for this trip. Uh, and there's a big reason. You just touched on it. Uh, Michigan was so critical to Joe Biden in terms of winning the White House in 2020. It's a state uh, that he won. It's a state Donald Trump won in 2016. And polls show that Trump is leading Biden in Michigan right now. There's a number of reasons for that, but the president, I think, is going to do two things. One, he's going to take a victory lap. Uh, forgetting the endorsement of the UAW last week. Uh, and the other thing is he's really got to patch up differences with the large Arab-American community that exists in Michigan. Uh, I think that's one reason why his poll numbers are down so much in Michigan right now. you speaking of polls. I mean, the, the latest polls, I mean, they're all over the place, and it's still a long ways away, and there's a lot of um, uncertainty around Biden and Trump. I mean, I don't know that we've ever had two candidates running and, and I'm assuming, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the inevitable likelihood that Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination, but I don't know that we've ever had a campaign for this long with so much uncertainty. Do the polls matter right now, John? And what do you think the polls reflect? Well, you know, to a certain extent, they, they matter. I think that the, both campaigns pay attention to them. They, they pay attention to them, especially if they're trailing in the polls. And we've seen uh, uh, polls which indicated very significant swing states uh biden is trailing trump uh so that's the reason why last week the president traveled to wisconsin you may recall i was on that trip it's the reason why he travels to pennsylvania so often in fact that's the state he visits uh the most uh during the course of his presidency it's because they do pay attention to these polls and they also recognize that they can't win the white house again without winning these swing states john the last subject i want to touch on with you we imagined that the trials were going to add layers of complications to Trump's candidacy, and and that's what a lot of Republicans were nervous about. The polls don't show that. I mean, the polls actually show that the American people are a bit sympathetic to Trump in regards to some of these some of these trials. The Supreme Court 
ballot case will be heard, uh, what, one week from today? That's right. That's right, Ken. It's one week from today. I'm going to be in the Supreme Court for that. Uh, I think it's a monumental case uh, to decide whether or not uh, Donald Trump's name can be on the ballot in the state of Colorado. It impacts other states as well. Uh, So oral arguments taking place one week from today. And I would bet you, Ken, that Donald Trump is there. I bet you he's in the Supreme Court to see those oral arguments play themselves out. John, how long after the court hears the case do we expect a ruling? Well, I think very quickly. This is one of those unusual situations where it does impact uh, what may happen a few weeks later, Super Tuesday, when you have both Colorado uh, and Maine having their primaries on Super Tuesday. So the Supreme Court will likely have to come back with a decision, a ruling on this particular issue very quickly before March the 5th. Very well explained. John, thank you for your time, sir. Um, Safe travels in the motorcade. All right. Thanks a lot, Ken. Have a great day. Bye-bye. John Decker, Senior National, excuse me, Great Television's Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, joining us on uh, Wake Up Carolina. I mean, once again, John gives a kind of an interesting, uh, a very journalistic view and a very insiderism view of what's happening in politics today. I think my blind spots, I mean, we all have blind spots, I think my blind spot is this belief I have that nothing about the status quo matters. I mean, that's what I want to believe. I have a passion in my heart that we have so upset the traditional orthodoxies of politics that nothing they say matters. But I got to be honest with myself. They took generations to entrench themselves and control the levers of government, there's no way, there's no way that I can believe none of these people matter, none of their, none of their power. I mean, you see where I'm headed? I mean, that that would be my blind spot. We've whipped the status quo's (laughs) butt. I mean, we've dispensed of the establishment. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, think again. Yeah, think again. Uh, No question about it. But at times, we see how they're fighting back. But at times, I kind of high-five myself. Yeah, You know what I mean? Man, it was great to be a part of that. Uh, no, it's great to be a part of that. It's not great to have been a part of that because they have not dismissed themselves yet. They are still very much in charge, very much executing in a very abstract way um, how powerful they are and how controlling they remain of you know the levers of government. <laughs> and as John just pointed out, I mean, Donald Trump's likely to be in front of the Supreme Court, at least in the, in the uh Courtroom next week as yep. those arguments are heard, right? And that, that'll be very interesting. Isn't that the empire striking back? That's the empire striking back. Uh, let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. I tell you, I can still taste the bowel of my mouth where I just threw up in my mouth when I hear congressional prayer breakfast, Joe Biden. Joe Biden and the congressional prayer breakfast with all of the people that have done everything possible to destroy Christianity. If that's not rich, I don't know what is. Ninety percent of the people in that prayer breakfast are, have done everything possible to destroy what the Christian values of this country. And then they're going to have a prayer breakfast. More than, I'll tell you what, if anybody needed prayer breakfast, it's them. I hope they're wearing rubber shoes. But i tell you another thing, too. Kid, we've been in a daggone recession. When they first started, people first started getting all panicky about COVID, businesses started slowing down. Hold their own without even 
Florida did, but nobody can tell the truth about you know about anything. And so you know, and you know about you know how both of those any moron ought to know when you print all that money, give people all that money. That's not an economy, son. That's 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 la la land. And, and to think is anything other than that, then you're you're either an idiot or you're lying to yourself or and know you're lying. But here's my question, and I've kind of asked it before, you know, and I've I mentioned it years ago, but, you know, what can we do to explain to the American people, if you took the D's and the R's and the independence and the liberty, all that other crap, all those, that's almost like pronouns. If you got rid of all of that and became a, uh, and, and said, hey, as an American citizen, what can we do to, to convince the American citizen, I mean, I mean, legal American citizens, we are in the same crap show together, and there is only one place to look to who's our, who our enemy is, and it is these globalist corporations, international corporations, these big business, and the government, and the government and the politicians. Everything that has gone wrong in this country, from wars to the economy, and you said this before, you know, the only people that can cause, the only person that can cause is wars are governments. The only person, people that cause recession are governments. When are people will come to the realization that we've just got a bunch of bad people running this world, whether it be the corporations or whether it be the government, and when are we going to realize that it's going to, it affects all of us equally? It doesn't matter what kind of a damn all letter you got in front of your name, whether it be D-R, like I said, I, Libertarian, or, or whatever. How do we get that message to, you know, how can we get the message to, I guess, I, what percentage of people do you think did realize what you and I realize? And I'll just leave it at that. Thank you, Breeze. That's, like- that's, that's an interesting, not, not, not a question as much as a conversation that we can have with ourselves, with one another. I think we're winning. I mean, I, I think the I think the America First movement is kind of an embodiment of an anti-government sentiment. I mean, I understand. I mean, it's it's China, it's trade, it's immigration, it's interventionism, it's globalism. I mean, there there are a hundred different talk show hosts talking in a hundred different sorts of ways. I think we're winning, but here's the question, Josh Reb: Can we win? I mean, we're winning now. Clemson was winning against Duke until 10 seconds to go in the game, and Duke got a call. Duke's the blue blood. They're in their building. They're going to get that call. Clemson knows they're going to get that call. You still get angry. You still get upset and frustrated. But when you have a beer with a fellow Clemson fan, you know what you aren't? You aren't surprised. You aren't surprised at all that Duke got that call in Cameron. I think we're winning. I think the polls reflect the genuine ah, animus people have toward government. I mean, it, it's going. I, I've, I've had people tell me this, and it, it, I'm, I shouldn't be proud of this. I should be ashamed of this. But I don't know how many people in the last two years have come up to me and said they're turning me into you. <laughs> Is that meant as a compliment? I think they mean it as a compliment, but I'm like, I don't want to be you. I mean, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the one 
that rails against government every single day and tells you not to trust government, to believe in conspiracy theories. The government's not your friend. They're not going to shoot you straight. They'll take all your damn money. They'll take all your rights. They'll take all your liberties. They'll take all your freedoms. But, but people are gradually coming kind of sort of to where we are. They're seeing it right before their very eyes. And the more we explain it and the more you understand it, the more likely it is we, I think we're winning. I don't know if we can win. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. There you go, Josh. There you go, Josh. Give that man a raise. There you go. Yeah, that's uh, it worked. There we go. <laughs> it did. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jameson in Spartanburg. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, fellas. Uh, Tim, you kind of had me thinking this morning, and I sort of had something I just wanted to throw out there, and it would probably be a better question for tomorrow when the delegation comes in, and I might call back, but at least. You can kind of start thinking about it, maybe have a discussion. So last night I stayed up way too late uh, watching the Senate debate, the constitutional carry bill, uh, which I believe is going to get third reading probably in a few hours today, um, which has already passed the House. And kind of the last amendment um, that was brought up as sort of a, quote, compromise by the Republican majority um, essentially changed in South Carolina our process of obtaining a CW, a concealed weapons permit, right? And so right now to obtain that, you know, you take a Saturday and you go pick and you pay about 100 bucks with an instructor to get to class. And it's usually, in my experience, a retired law enforcement officer that, you know, kind of does it just as a little side business to make a little bit of money. Well, the compromise was, hey, if we're going to allow constitutional carry in this state where you can have a gun anywhere you want on your body, in your car, no matter what, no permit, no government, anything, we still want to incentivize folks to go get that training, to know how to properly use a firearm, to know the laws, to know how to store that weapon, that kind of thing. We can't make you, but we want to incentivize that. So they came up with the idea of, hey, and they, this was adopted, we are now instructing SLED to – contract with local CWP instructors around the state, and the state is going to cover the cost for anyone to take a CWP class and have that training. Um, and there's going to be at least two in each county every month. Obviously, some of the bigger counties will have more than two, but at least two a month for free that the state takes the call, so we're not putting people out of business. Um just because we would rather, obviously, have, if we're going to folks with guns, it, you know, it's better off of, for all of us, for law enforcement, for themselves, for the people around them, if they are educated and trained, right? So we realized they kind of ran the numbers. That would cost us about $5 million a year. And, you know, obviously some of the fiscal halts brought up, well, are we, we're not creating a new government program, but we're expanding government. And sort of the answer to that was, as the majority leader gave, was, hey, um, you know, we spend a lot of money on everything. We, you know, budget's coming up in a little while. Just wait. We'll spend 30 seconds debating on if we need to build a million-dollar museum in Pamplico about truck body manufacturers just to educate everyone. And if you got the right senator, next year we'll build a museum in Pamplico about lieutenant governors from Pamplico. And nobody blinks an eye. And if we need to spend $5 million to have a trained uh, citizenship in South Carolina, that's worth it. And I kind of – follow me here for just one second. I'll be done. It, I, it made me also think when you were bringing up the school lunch issue earlier, um, and I agree with everything you say. However, in the, 
recently, you know, I was dating a school teacher from uh, taught at a school that, um, let's just say, did not have the best uh, parents, I guess. Um, and it was so bad where on Sundays, you know, I had to get used to instead of coming home after church and watching golf or football, we would go to Costco so she could buy snacks and stuff to give to her kids on Fridays because she knew they weren't getting a meal between then and Monday morning. And again, that's the parents' fault. And I think most of these parents should be locked up and the children removed from them, but I don't know how that works if we're capable of doing that. However, looking at now, again, all the things we spend money on, there is, I don't know if I'm turning into a liberal or not, is it worth it maybe just to, and I don't know how much it would cost, to feed kids through the summer, to just maybe give them a shot to not end up on the streets or not end up on, in jail? And all the, all the things we spend money on in South Carolina that make zero sense, if we're going to spend money, I there's a, a weird part of me that would be okay with that. And I know kind of this federal program is a different story, but if we're going to spend the money, I could be okay with doing that in a responsible manner. Um, again, this will be a better conversation tomorrow once the delegation sure, sure. gets in. But it was it was uh, thought provoking and would just kind of love to get you thinking. And you know, again, it's it's not the kids' fault. It's not you know, it's not your kids. Um, but you know, to quote Steve Spurrier, it, it kind of is what it is. And uh, I'm not really sure what the answer is, but uh, I don't know. I think it was a, it'd be a good discussion maybe tomorrow. We'll do that. Thank you, Jamison. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, th- these are all thoughtful issues. I mean, the, the country's a better place. The state's a better place when someone seriously considers why they believe what they believe and respects someone who believes something differently. I mean, I've always said there's a little aspiration in politics when it's done the right way. My concern is, I mean, you've got a theoretical world. And I think very often government theorizes. Well, I mean, Jefferson was a political theorist. I mean, nobody knew exactly how this thing would turn out. We don't know exactly how tomorrow will turn out. But but I, I just, I, I, I've landed as I've gotten older. And maybe I've turned into the, um, I'm the quintessential cynic. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very cynical. I, I believe that government is, it's hard for me to defend what government has done in regards to trying. It would be a little bit like capital punishment. Is it a deterrent or not? I mean, if you get your giggles and kicks watching somebody get electrocuted, that's your problem, not mine. Is it a, a deterrent? Is 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 feeding children whose parents don't feed them an enabler to the parent? I mean, in, in theory, I get it. I mean, in theory, the school teacher says, I've got these three kids in my class who are getting proper nutrition, and I just can't watch them be hungry. I understand that. I mean, that, that that's not just theorizing. That's the real world. But as a government, are we enabling bad behavior? Or are we condemn, condoning bad behavior by saying, okay, mom, you've got six kids, you're 25 years old, never been married, and you can't provide for your kids, but instead of taking it out on the kids, the government, the good old hardworking taxpayer, I mean, they'll figure out a way to take care of your six kids for you. Is government an enabler? In that situation, I learned a lot about enabling when my son went through addiction. You love your kid so much, you're afraid of what he might do if you don't give him a little bit of money to maybe buy him a pill or not. You know what I mean? I mean, I knew I was an enabler. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that I was an enabler. But enabling him 
at that moment was the best choice I could make for fear of him getting his hands on a pill under a bridge laced with fentanyl. I mean, I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. But my concern about the the, the free lunch programs is it is it customary now for government to take care of kids? Has government become the ultimate consummate enabler of parents to not care for the kids that they bring into the, the real world? Well, you can't take it out on the kid, but you can the taxpayer. I mean, I, there, there's no winner here. Hungry child, hardworking taxpayer. Hardworking taxpayer doesn't have enough money to really do for his family what he wants to do. But now you're telling him a certain percentage of his taxes go to provide nutrition for a kid who was brought to the world by a parent who has never had an interest in providing for that kid? I mean, it's a complicated yeah, debate. Because, because it hits differently when it's children. Sure. And children are suffering due to no fault of their own. But but it's not the taxpayer's fault. And the That's government right. becomes the, is the government the solution or is the government the enabler? Yes. I mean, the government is the solution and the government is also the enabler. Take a break. Back in a few. I told Josh during the break, and I think he agrees with me. We, we've gotten ourselves in a place where we can't contemplate the, 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 the surgical expertise and fix this. And you tweak this policy. No, I mean, we've gotten ourselves in a, in, in, a, in a horrible, horrible place. And I guess that's what excites me about America First. It seems to be a bit more radical than the majority of political movements. And I think the only way to reform government, the only way to reorient our country to more of a constitutionally sound government is radical change. I mean, I think there are fair debates to be had about lunch programs and when to carry a weapon and how to carry a weapon. And, but I think we have to be very radical in reorienting the American government. It's broken. I mean, it's horribly, horribly broken. It's punitive. It's unfair. It's disproportional. It's unethical. And you're not going to tweak that to a place that Jefferson would be proud. I mean, we've got to radically reform um, government. We talked yesterday about Trump being a very radical political personality, but nothing real radical about his agenda. I mean, it, you know, Trump was not a radical governance. I mean, he, he just didn't. I mean, I don't have any idea why he didn't govern like his attitude is, but I mean, he had John Bolton and Bill Barr working for him. There's nothing radical about Bolton and Barr. Um, the most radical policy in my lifetime has been Obamacare. I mean, we talked a little bit that that is radical. We radically reformed healthcare in America. We radically reformed the way 20% of our economy's business was conducted. It was radical. And as a result of that, a lot, a lot of people are paying far too much for health insurance. So others can't or don't have to pay enough. I mean, that, that's, that's the radical reorienting of healthcare in America today. Um, if you're someone like me who is on the short end of that stick, um, we've gained a sponsor and we talked a lot about this sponsor, um, because health insurance is not only expensive, it's gotten extremely complicated. If you're under the age of 65, you're reasonably healthy. Now remember that if you're under the age of 65 and you're reasonably healthy, I'm sure unless you're working for the government, I'm sure you're paying too much for your health insurance. You call Christian Levis at 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to the website, realchoicehealthcare.com, alternate and optional plans. 
outside of the Affordable Care Act that I call the Not So Affordable Care Act. But um, but no, I mean our country and its government is broken. I mean, I read an article yesterday. Might have been the Atlantic. Chicken Littles are running the country, and they talked about Chicken Littles and the skies falling and preppers and doom and gloomers. Well, I mean, put our record because I'd be one of those. Put our record against everybody else's record over the last 25 years and tell me who's got the best batting average. I mean, those that said everything's going to be okay? Because I'm telling you guys, it works until it don't work no more. And I've told Rev, and I'll stand by this, the world changed in 2008 when the government decided to bail out the banks and bail out the auto industry. I mean, that, that was surface. I mean, that, that was the, that's what we all remember. They bailed out all these big banks and made bad decisions and consumers made bad loans and subprime lending. And, but, but the real, the real culprit that we became a part of was quantitative easing. I mean, that, that's the dark secret of 2008. We all became modern monetary theorists. We all became Keynesian economists. I mean, we normalize one of the most abnormal economic forces in the history of mankind. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. I'm, I'm with you, uh, Ken. I think the American people are waking up because there's a lot of noise in the background. I don't know what's going on. I hear it but, now. Okay, that's better. They, they, is it better? Yeah, we got it now. Okay, I, I was just saying I agree with you. The American people are starting to wake up because they realize that all of these problems in Mideast, the border inflation, is all caused by the Biden administration. When he took the sanctions off of Iran, hell, that gave them over $30 billion in, in oil, plus he gave them another $6 billion, and they said, oh, that's only for humanitarian. Well, they can use that anyway. You know money's fungible. But all these the border crisis, everything, that's all. And they do that because they know you're not going to deport them all, and eventually they're going to be made citizens, so that's a guaranteed vote for Democrats. That's why they do it. But the food stamp thing is, you know, we we give out the food stamps. When it started, you, you spent like 80, 80 cents on the dollar, and you got the stamps made up for what, you know, you didn't have to spend. And they didn't like that because it wasn't enough. And it embarrassed the people to use the stamp, so they went to the card. Now, it's up to 125% of poverty. So now we're feeding the children in school for free, and now they want the summer program for free. So what what are the food stamp programs for? They don't buy food with the food stamps, which is one of the points is they're trading it for everything else. You're talking about Obamacare. All that is is a redistribution of wealth. You know, we got people, you said they, they asked, the first thing they asked is how much you make. So if, if you make very little, you're, you're, it's just like before, your insurance is free. The government subsidizes it. So they're trying to take over everything. This child tax credit, and, and they just passed in the House. Up to two thousand dollars, you're going to. Uh, that's refundable. If you don't owe any tax or anything, you're going to get that two thousand dollars back 
even though you don't owe any taxes. But the thing people better realize is in 25 next year, all of the Trump tax cuts expire. And if we don't reelect Republicans and Trump, the taxes are going to go right back where they were before and even higher because Biden says he's not going to raise taxes on anybody that makes no money because that's the only way it works. If you make no money, you can't raise taxes on that. But people, I think people are starting to wake up, and uh, I don't know. They're experimenting with $1,000 a month guaranteed income in Austin, Texas, and they say that that pays their rent. Well, all that's doing is increasing the price of rent because that's a guaranteed floor. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. But, I mean, fundamentally what we're talking about, and, and we're talking around the, the, the central issue, fundamentally what we're arguing, I mean, historically it's been conservative and liberal. The conservative has a set set of values and principles, and, and it reflects in their policies. The liberal has a set of values and, and principles, and it kind of um, it reflects in their policies. And, and, and I get it. I mean, we're on, we're, we all aren't Vulcans. I mean, we're not robotic inhuman creations. I mean, we have these emotions, we have these events and experiences and it shapes our worldview. I mean, I, I was raised by a postal working mom and a kind of a self-made business guy as a father. My father despised everything about government. My dad believed that government complicated every facet of his life. They were not his friend. They were out to get him. I mean, they were making his life more difficult. Uh, as he made a little money, they got more of it. The regulations, I mean, every time he turned around, there was some government agency in our business. The liberal believes that's part of the solution. The conservative believes that the government has become an enabler. And, and I think Obamacare. I mean, imagine this, guys. Imagine the federal government, at the request of a president, decides to take 20% of our economy. And when you go to a website and apply for health care, I mean, imagine this, for health care, they don't ask you how healthy you are. They ask you how much money you make. I mean, imagine going on Carvana, and the first question is how healthy you are. It's ra- it's unbelievably <laughs> radical, and we've accepted it as normal because it's easy to be liberal. You know why it's easy to be liberal? Because you're Santa Claus. I mean, quantitative easing had to be done because all these people had all these problems, and the government's so- the solution to the problems. My argument is the government is the enabler. The government enabled us to be $34 trillion in debt. The government enabled inflation to be more rampant than it ever has been in human history. It's not, to me personally, and I can't speak for all of you, but to me, government, to believe government is a solution to all these problems is asinine. I mean, it's absurd. It is an enabler. It enables people who are not healthy to pass that burden along to people who are. I mean, in, in a market-based, in an American market-based healthcare market, you know the first question you're asked when you apply for health care? Do you have any ailments? How healthy are you? 
Are you taking medicine? Do you have cancer? We don't ask that in this new model. I mean, the ACA air, I'll give you another classic radical example. The Affordable Care Act allows Josh, who has cancer, to get coverage. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have some pool of money set aside for, I mean, we, we, we've agreed to that. When a hurricane hits South Carolina, I think we all pull together. But it's not my job to feed your child breakfast every morning. I'm sorry, it's just not. I don't believe that's a solution. I believe I'm an enabler. When a hurricane hits South Carolina and people are distressed, we help one another. I mean, we, that, that's that, that moment in time that we are a village and we pull together. And Dave's house got hit a lot harder than mine. And in the name, I mean, to me, it's Christianity, but it's, for others, it's something else. But there, there's a humanitarian somewhere in all of us. And we know our fellow man needs help and we go help. That's different than the government forcing the taxpayer to buy breakfast for kids who, for whatever reason, aren't being nourished, properly nourished. That's not government finding a solution. To me, that's government enabling something. Um, You know, uh, pre-existing conditions. How many of you really believe that insuring someone with a pre-existing condition is actually insurance? It's assuming a liability. I mean, it's like the it's like the um it's like the homeowner's policy. A car drives off the road and runs into your den, and you don't have any insurance. And you call the insurance company the next morning and say, "Hey, could you come over? I want to get you to give me a price on my on my house." He comes there and there's a big hole in the den. What happened here? Car ran through it last night. Well, I can't insure your house with. Uh, I mean, you got to fix that. Then I'll. No, I want it now. You, you got, an insurance company ain't going to assume that liability. But the government, in, in the most radical fashion imaginable, said to the healthy Americans, you're going to assume the liability of the unhealthy Americans. We're in this thing together. Every day is not a hurricane. Every day is not a wildfire. Every day is not a cataclysmic event. But we're living our lives governed by, by, by radical policies that treat everything that way. How radical is it? to ask a taxpayer who's doing all they can to keep their head above water to subsidize kids who aren't being fed by their, uh, you know, natural parents. I mean, that, that's radical. But, but in America today, we've accepted that as normal. Well, I mean, my, you know, I mean, you heard Jameson. I mean, I know Jameson a little bit. He's kind of a conservative guy, smart guy, very, very um, dedicated to understanding politics. And he said, you know, but, but shouldn't we do something but that, that's kind of the, shouldn't we do something? Well, I'm telling you, when you add well, I mean, got these kids, the humanity and yeah. children. You got these kids. So let's it, ask ourselves. It tugs on your heartstrings. Well, okay, let's ask ourselves. Is government the solution? Look at his track record. Or is government the enabler? If government was the solution, more people would be working and the debt would be a lot less. Government is an enabler. And some people know how to play the game. Some people know how to, you know, move this. I know how to play the game. I played the game before. I've allowed newsflash. There have been places in my life I've allowed government to be an enabler. Makes me a hypocrite. Difference in you and I is I'll say it. Most of you won't declare yourself a hypocrite. I'm a socialist libertarian. I like my government. I hate yours. <laughs> but, I mean, at some point in time, we've got to radically look at government. Josh had a, such a radical thing he said 
and I'm scratching my head about it. We're talking about permitless gun carry. Um, I'm not for that. I'm not for the Wild West. I don't want to live around Josie Wales. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, the Second Amendment gives you the, I mean, quote it, Rev. I mean, you quoted it a second ago. Shall not be infringed. Mm, shall not be infringed upon, right? I mean, that's unequivocally. You got a right to have a gun, cup of Starbucks coffee on one side, 38 special on the other. I mean, do you want to live in that? I don't. So I accept that government has some role, some responsibility, provides some degree of guardrail there. If you've got to have a permit to own a gun, you got to have a permit to drive a car, should you have a permit to have a kid? Mmm. Whoa. What's a bigger responsibility than having a kid? Amen. Biggest responsibility I've ever taken on in my life. You got to have a permit to drive a car. You got to have a permit to get a gun. You got to have a permit to build a dock in a lake. You got to have a permit to pave your driveway. You got to have a permit to open your restaurant. But anybody can have a kid any damn time they choose, whether they can take care of that kid or not. And when they can't, it's not their fault. It's society's fault for letting these people down. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. I'm not saying I'm for someone having to be permitted before they have a child, but those are the sorts of radical propositions and proposals we're going to have to consider if we're going to get the American spirit back well again. It's just bizarre to me how we've normalized some of the most radical things imaginable. We're making people feel abnormal because they don't want to fund breakfast programs at public schools of children that don't, you know, they don't have a kid going there. Well, I mean, it's the good-hearted American. We're all in this thing together. It takes a village to raise a child. I buy that. At certain points in society, I buy that. I believe with every fiber of my being, when my fellow man needs assistance, I am required to be there. When he needs assistance, I, I, I'm just not buying that that many people in America can't make their way. I, I, I don't buy that. I don't buy that that many kids going to public schools in South Carolina can't find a way to be fed. But government is not the solution. It's rather the enabler. Take a break. Back in a few. I'm a, um, I'm a hardcore libertarian. Some would accuse me of being an anarchist, um, but I do serve the interest of our constituency. And since I'm not an elected official, it ain't voters, but rather listeners. And we had listeners yesterday curious about the Murdoch situation. And I have followed some of the stories, but I certainly don't understand the legal ins and outs. Um, Patrick McLaughlin is a local attorney here with the Wakila Law Firm. And Patrick came on a couple of times during the um i'll call it the first episode of the murdoch trial <laughs> season one yeah season one. season one there you go there you go netflix drama uh docudrama so now patrick's back to um patrick and i'll ask a simple question the majority of us thought it was over and now it appears that it's not over how did it go from us thinking it's not over to now or excuse me it's over to now wondering whether it's really over or not well i mean because all this stuff about the comments that were made by the clerk of court came out after the verdict. So that certainly was the, the, uh, cliffhanger twist end to season one and led us into season two, which, uh, appears to have been a very short 
for short season, <laughs> just one or two episodes. So are we over now? I mean, is it done? I mean, the, the truth of the matter is anybody really familiar with the criminal process would have told you that the odds of him getting a new trial were the odds were against him. Okay. All right. They're against any criminal defendant who is convicted at trial. Um, you've got an uphill slog. The the comments when they were first made at first, it was like, well, maybe that's he's got a he may have a chance here. And then you had the status conference hearing, I guess, about two weeks, two or three weeks ago, where um once uh Judge Newman recused himself and it was a uh, uh, former Chief Justice Toll was appointed to handle this, and she had this hearing where she laid out kind of the ground rules of it that what chance he had diminished greatly with her interpretation of what law would be applied. And essentially what, what you had was the defense was relying on a legal principle that came from a United States Supreme Court case called Rimmer, which basically stands for the fact that if if a comment is made by a court official to the jury that's inappropriate, prejudice is presumed. So in other words, then the burden was going to be on the state to show that that the comment wasn't prejudicial, did not influence the jury. Uh, Justice Toll told everybody she wasn't going with that standard. And, and that's where I want to stop you. So she has discretion to do that? Well, I mean, she's got to sure any judge has discretion to interpret the law. That's what they're there for, right? But but, but even even if there's, I mean, you, you're you're saying that that's kind of sort of clear precedent. Well, well, what Justice Toll relied on was a case called State versus Green from our our uh, appellate court system. Okay, and State versus Green, essentially, the it, there was a court of appeals decision that that found that a bailiff had made a comment to a jury. Uh, I think the jury had asked, well, what would happen if we don't reach a verdict? And the bailiff had explained to them, you know, basically kind of what the Allen charge is, which is known as the dynamite charge, that type of thing. Bailiff shouldn't be doing that, right? That's inappropriate for the bailiff to discuss that. Well, why is that inappropriate? Well, because the bailiff's not supposed to be telling the jury anything about the law or procedure. That's what the judge is there for. And if you have people telling jury things like that outside the presence of the courtroom, you're denying the defendant the right to know what's being said. You're denying his lawyer, his or her lawyer, the right to to opine on that and challenge what's being said to the jury. It's a Sixth Amendment problem, right? Well, so that was just kind of like a, a procedural administrative process. What the, the Court of Appeals in uh, Green said was, nah, you know, that really didn't, it just had to do with, you know, kind of housekeeping issues. It was no big deal. Well, our, our Supreme Court, South Carolina Supreme Court, uh, affirmed that Court of Appeals opinion and, and went a step further when they did it to say, we don't agree that this uh, presumption of prejudice automatically from Rimmer automatically applies. But if you read the opinion, they say every time a bailiff makes comments to the jury, in fact, they go on to say, we, we use this opportunity to instruct our courts, and notably, they said, our clerk of courts, on how to instruct our bailiffs not to do that. You know, the appropriate measure would have been, you say, write a note with your question, I'll take it to the judge, and the judge will answer. So, Justice Toll said, our Supreme Court has said that Rimmer presumption of prejudice doesn't apply all the time, and that's what I'm doing. 
you know, the flip side of that is, well, they said it didn't apply when a bailiff makes comments about housekeeping stuff. We're not talking about a bailiff. And that's kind of where I was headed. The accusations against the clerk would be a little bit different than a bailiff doing something he probably should should have been better off, as you said, getting a letter, going to a judge. Oh, on two levels, it would be different. One, clerk of court is different than a bailiff. Clerk of court is arguably the 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 second most powerful person in that courtroom. To a certain extent, to a juror, they may be seen as the most powerful because the clerk of court is the reason why the juror's there, right? The clerk of court is the one who summons you there. Clerk of court is the one who, if you meet the requirements to be excused from jury duty, you got to present them to the clerk of court, and she or he can excuse you from it. Clerk of court is the judicial system contact person for everybody in the county where they are, right? Clerk of court's always there. Judges sometimes travel around and stuff. That's your clerk of court. So the clerk of court is significantly more powerful than the bailiff. The second level in which that was different was the alleged comments by Miss Hill weren't just about housekeeping. That they what, were. What were the most troubling comments to you as a lawyer? Well, she should. The comments that she made about watch the person and you know he's testifying, do all this. She shouldn't be making those at all. That is, those are specifically instructions that the judge gives. In fact, they're they're, they're instructions judges give at the beginning of any trial. When they task the jury with what their role is as a fact finder, they talk to them about weighing the credibility of witnesses and how you do that. You listen to them. You watch their mannerisms, stuff like that. That is the providence of the judge, and that needs to take place in the court because it needs to take place in front of the defendant so that if there's anything wrong with those instructions, the defendant can challenge them. So that's that's issue number one. But number two was supposedly there were comments made about don't be fooled by what he says. That sounds to me like jury tampering. Well, it's a it's a clear violation of the Sixth Amendment because essentially what that is is that if if those comments are made, that's her testifying about Alex's truthfulness to the jury, and Alex and his defense team don't get to hear that. They don't get a chance to confront it, and that's I mean Sixth Amendment right to confront the witnesses against you, pretty important right. Okay, but. Judge Toll has decided no new trial. She she did, and so the window had shrank significantly. That didn't surprise you that she decided no new trial. Well, no, going in once she said that was going to be the standard. It's boy, boy, whatever chance he had. You was, saw the writing on the wall as, as a fellow attorney. But so I was actually in court in Sumter, and uh, a friend of mine texted me, and I happened to see it. It said first first juror out the gate says yes. He'll talk to her, and yes, it, it influenced her her uh, verdict. Well, at that point in time, even under this very narrow uh, window that she has said we're going to look at this through, that would seem to be game, set, and match, right? So now all of a sudden, whoa. Okay, so so Murdoch doesn't get a new trial, but he'll – what happens to her? Because it's, it's obvious she did some things that were inappropriate, not to the point of toll granting a new trial, but what, what, what lies in the future for Hill? And I think she had a son. I mean, there's a cell phone involved, messages involved in all this. Well, so the, the very interesting thing to me was how come, because she was put on, you know, despite the fact that going into this, it was said, just told us like, we're not going to have a put Becky Hill on trial. Uh, she got put on trial um, by none other than Justice Toll, who who cross-examined her pretty, pretty hard. Um, 
what I don't think I heard at all any question about that. There was a question by uh, Dick Harpootlian, uh, rather effective, I think, about did you meet with Sled and the AG to prepare for this? And she said yes, at least two times, about two hours. And he was like, oh, well, so it took you two hours to prepare for the 20 minutes worth of testimony we just heard? But what wasn't ever asked of her was uh, any type of immunity agreement you get for your testimony here today. So I don't know. You know that stuff about her son, and supposedly she has wrapped up somewhat in whatever the allegations are against him. All that stuff is still out there. But, you know, the, the real troubling thing about it was when the ruling was made, the comment was like a, a fleeting fleeting comments like this in a trial that was this long wasn't enough to turn it over. You know, well, well how, how long could it have been and this would have been enough to overturn it? And the problem is, is where we are now is – the reason why you have the presumption of prejudice is to avoid where, where where we're left right now, having to say we don't really believe a juror who was saying comments were made to to her that influenced her decision, and that's not good for the judicial system to put jurors in a position where they've they've done their service, did their service for six weeks in this case. And essentially now they're publicly, you know, kind of shamed. I mean, Justice Hole did her best not to, to try to make that, that juror look bad, just saying it was, uh, you know, ambivalent testimony. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to get there. And that's why the presumption of prejudice exists, so that you don't have to question the juror's veracity. It's like the juror never should have been put in that spot. Okay, but, but I, and I want to go here for a second. You're a lawyer, I'm not. But it seems to me. And then this is kind of weird, but it seems to me that the clerk of court is somewhat of a witness of the state. <laughs> well, she certainly, the, she, she, she admitted they? she, she met with sled in the AG to prepare for that. Well, I mean, I think it's very clear who's, what does the state want to happen in that hearing? They, they don't want a new trial. That's right. They want to preserve the, sure. the verdict. They, they, and they so that they put, they put her up there. And they had met with her and talked about her testimony. So I think very, very clearly that she was a witness for the state. So, so how is that addressed? I mean, once again, I'm not a lawyer. You are. But if I sense that, then others have to sense that as well, that it appears the clerk of court, who we need to be neutral, hasn't been neutral at all. Well, I think that's the... That's at the very heart of what the questions were, right? That she wasn't neutral. So who who deserves an answer to those questions? Who can demand an answer of those questions? Well, I mean, as, I know as, I'm as out of my as lane. It, as it seems like the, the 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 answer in the judicial system, at least at the trial level, has happened now, that the appellate the appellate courts can address it more and try to get an answer. But ultimately, I guess it's going to be the uh, the voters of uh, of the county when she comes back up for election. Unless she is indicted, at which point I think that would lead to Governor McMa uh, McMaster having to remove her. What would the indicting charges be, Patrick? I mean, what would you speculate? Some I mean, of the they, charges. Would well, be? certainly misconduct in office, right? I mean, that, that could be it, that that could be a charge for any elected official if it is seen that they abused 
you know, in other any way conducting themselves uh, in violation of their duties of office, right? That's always something that's out there. I don't really know enough about uh, the allegations against the son seem to involve uh, conduct against other county employees, you know, so I don't really know, you know, I, I, I what the allegations are and her with that, whether it's somehow helping her son cover it up or something, I have no idea. So I don't know. Is there enough controversy for you to put an asterisk beside all of what's happened? I mean, you, you and I've talked and I'll say this. I mean, I think Alec did it. I mean, I, I don't know that he did it by himself, but I think he did. He was involved in killing his wife and, and kid. I don't ask if you believe that or not, but, but does, is, is there now some sense of an asterisk? Beside this case. So the thing that always troubles me, especially as a somebody who's usually on the defense side of a criminal case, is when you got such a strong case, right? When you got all this evidence, you say it's such a strong case. Why do you what anything that makes it look like the thumb was put on the scale is just superfluous. It's not needed, right? I mean, it, it, that's the argument. There was so much evidence that Justice Toll, after her ruling you know, kind of sat back down, told everybody else not to leave yet, and said, talked about how she had reviewed the whole transcript and how it's what a strong case it was against him and all that. And if all that stuff's true, none of this was needed. And so what it does is it calls into question the validity of of what the process ultimately got to because it calls into question the process. And it's it's not a good look for anybody. Well explained. Can we call you the official legal analyst for Wake Up Carolina? <laughs> I mean, there's no pay that comes along with that. <laughs> well, well, that's what Vaughn asked me this morning. She said, how much is he paying you to go on there? And we'll, said, we'll get him a T-shirt and a, a six-pack of Diet Pepsi. Well, I just uh, lifetime membership to the Pamplico Trucking Museum and Lieutenant <laughs> no, Governor there, there Museum. Oh, okay, sounds fair good. Enough, fair enough. Enough. We'll put you on the committee. All right, so. good, good, yeah. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate that a lot. Patrick no McLaughlin, the Wakila Law Firm, does a great job of kind of giving a legal analysis of, um, of things that I – think I understand, but obviously do not. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. All these highfalutin networks have legal analysts. Why can't we have our own legal analysts? And I think Patrick does a great job of um, explaining oh, yeah. things. I mean, he's a lawyer. He's a, a great defense attorney, but he's also kind of a native of Evergreen. So he speaks a little bit of native Pamplicoenian. I mean, I don't think he's fluent in Pamplicoenian, but he speaks enough to be understandable for us um, legal illiterates. Fair enough. Um, but I think he did a great job of explaining where we are in that in that saga that is still a human tragedy. I mean, it's an enormous human human tragedy that has become a riveting Netflix documentary. You know, the um, the moss laced oak trees and the long driveways and the the southern plantation homes and you know, us Southerners, we like to name houses anyway, um, <laughs> and and farms and and you know, former plantations and whatnot. But Patrick did a great job of. Um, I mean, obviously, he's not a. We're not a big a deal enough to have a, a, a legal analyst, but he's as close as we've got. He'll answer the um, call. He'll, he'll, he'll answer call the call and, that's, and that's come awesome. on. And and um, I'm not saying do his service to community, but he does a great job of kind of um, explaining exactly what's happening. In the uh, in the Murdoch trial, I did read somewhere that she had interviewed with Sled, 
And I remember thinking to myself, ah, see, that was news to that me. Makes I, me a little feel. That makes me feel a little fucky I, I, about I, that. I hadn't followed it that closely. Now I will admit, having seen the courtroom pictures and video that's been on television, it's been on national news. I mean, Fox has talked a lot about it. Fox said news, but continue. I hear you, but. It brought back those memories and the human side of it, like you're talking about, the, the tragedy part of it when I was seeing uh, Murdoch in court and these these issues being reopened. I, that was just interesting to me because obviously it's been resolved, case closed, until you see that kind of thing going on. But Let me ask you a question. Are you a news network? Here we go. If if any, I mean, let's just, let's make up a, a job description. You ready? What if, the news network, remember the word news, the news network was not allowed to hire female employees between 5'7 and 5'10 that weigh between 120 and 130 pounds. If no female over 5'7, less than 135 pounds, could work at Fox, would they be a news network? What kind of answer is that? <laughs> I'm trying to contemplate exactly what you're getting at. I don't understand the question. Sure you understand the question. <laughs> it's a simple question. Could Fox function as a news organization if they were disallowed from hiring females over 5'7", less than 135 pounds, today? See, we had this discussion you know about what they'd Fox. Be? It'd be like the old days when the network signed off. Yeah, there'd be static on the air. But we have this argument. And you say, is, "Is Fox? You know, that's not a news channel. That's a bunch of silliness." It's it's a entertainment. Lot of I mean, it's and entertainment. It is it's not. A... It's not news. I mean, it's entertainment. I mean, and Brett Bayer's a journalist, and he does the best he can. Uh, Britt Hume, he's an old hand. You know, he's a, he's a journalist. But uh, I mean, it, it's a business. I mean, it, it's Brian a, Kilmeade. Well, I mean, I, I loved it when someone said, "Yeah, Kilmeade, feet won't touch the ground. Give me that box." Um, <laughs> But he's Ro funny. Well, I mean, we, we like to believe that. Well, I mean, I don't. But Roger Ailes was a conservative lion. I mean, Ailes worked on political campaigns. He's a, a true conservative. He believes in limited government. But Rupert Murdoch's a capitalist. <laughs> and the Murdoch family are capitalists. And, um, you know, I mean, he let Ailes drive the train. And I think Ailes probably sat Murdoch down when they said, Rupert, a lot of these conservatives believe the media is so liberal, they're not getting a fair shake. If you let me run a news organization, I can attract an audience big enough that don't believe they're getting a fair shake. They're largely going to be men. They're largely going to be white. And they're largely going to be more interested in somebody reading a teleprompter who's 5'8", 125 pounds, and has blonde hair. I mean, that, that was their business model. It was never about, hey, let, now they did land Brit Hume. Remember when Hume left ABC News and went to Fox? And that was a big deal. I mean, it gave them some legitimacy. And I know that Ailes thought that. Ailes said, I don't have any legitimacy in the news. People consider me a partisan because he was a partisan. He cut his teeth in political campaigns. But Ailes was smart enough to go get um, Hume. And Hume was, you know, the director of news operations at Fox. And out of that came Fox News. And the next thing you know, every woman in America who's 5'8 and 125 pounds of blonde hair has a job at Fox reading a teleprompter. <laughs> and it worked. I mean, it worked tremendously. Sure did. And, um, of course, you know, these days there's a lot of criticism said that, that says they've changed. They're not what they used to be. They're certainly not that model of, uh, you know, a conservative-leaning well, I mean, news but, network. But Fox was identified by their 8 o'clock time slot host. True. I mean, it, it was it was O'Reilly, and then it was Megyn Kelly, and then it was Tucker. I mean, they had these superstars, these media superstars that were really good at what they did. 
I mean, like, like them, love them, hate them, despise them, wish they were off the air, wish they were on more. Bill O'Reilly was really good at television. Megyn Kelly was good at television. Tucker Carlson, good at television. And that was that anchor. I mean, that was that 8 o'clock time slot, and everything fed off that. The 9 o'clock Tucker show, the 10 o'clock, what is it, uh, Laura Ingram, you know, her show. That, that was a kind of a star-studded lineup. But it was opinion. I mean, it was all opinion. And I know we've had callers call in before saying, well, the daytime is different. I mean, the daytime is, is news. But people work during the day. What gets the ratings? I mean, I mean what's just, Fox is having trouble with the ratings right now. I mean, they're scrambling a little bit. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I don't think you believe that Jesse Waters is in the same case or same class as Tucker Carlson. I don't. I mean, that no, was a nowhere, serious nowhere downgrade. Close. You know, and, and I'm a fan of Jesse Waters. I think he's funny and he's entertaining. Funny. He's an entertaining and he's, guy. He's pretty, uh, he's pretty brave because there's things he, he will say that you go, wow, can't believe he just said that. But, but when you're, when I you're, agree with you. But when you're not a journalist, you got to say things that people don't expect you to say. Tucker was kind of the, I mean, he is. I mean, Tucker was. He is. He's got more followers now than he had viewers at Fox. I mean, he's a bigger deal now than he was uh, now that Twitter's been liberated. And Elon Musk, the free speech absolutist, is uh, is in charge. 843-661-0937. On the other side, we've got Eben Brown, who will talk a little bit about this civil fraud case. Um, has the judge ruled? When the judge will rule? Um, I I don't know why, but my instinct says some of these trials are going to be less complicated than we expected. And I don't know that that's good for Trump. I know that sounds crazy. We want these trials to go away and, and, and be done with. I think it saves him a million dollars a day when he's on television in a courtroom than having to run political ads. Take a break. Back in a few. No Eben Brown because the judge hadn't ruled, right? Josh, isn't that the word from Fox? We had Eben Brown scheduled at 9.05, but Eben will not be with us this morning because the judge in the civil case has not made a ruling. That's the word. Okay, let's go back to this conversation. I think we've stumbled on some potential radio genius. I said oh. stumbled. I mean, I said... Oh, I, I, we would know, have to. Well, I mean, of course we would. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing ingenious about any of us. I mean, I don't know Josh well enough. I know Rev and I are very, very average when it comes to being smart. And <laughs> I mean, if we do have a moment, it's because we stumbled, stumbled. on right. uh, that profound moment. But, but Josh, the debate between conservative and liberal... I think is, I mean, when you, when you really get into it, there's something in the mental, psychological, and soulful makeup of a person that makes them a conservative. I think so, okay? yeah. I, 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 I'm not disagreeing that you could be born with, with some sort of liberal bent or born with some sort of conservative bent, but the majority of your, your, your policy positions are the belief that this is good policy, that's bad, is a derivative of the how you were raised and where you come from and what sort of events that, that have helped shape your life. I'm more sympathetic to addiction now than I was because my kid was an addict. I mean, that would be a natural human trait, right? I mean, I don't think anybody would be surprised. Hey, Ken isn't the same guy about addiction now that he was 10 years ago when he thought everybody could just, just say no, like Nancy Reagan said, just say no. Um, he's kind of a different dude. Well, those events and experiences have molded me. Have, have shaped me, reshaped me in that case. And, and now I believe something fundamentally different about addiction. Um, that's an event and experience, a series of events and experiences. So I don't doubt that, that all of us have some 
genetic makeup we're born with that we lean a little left or lean a little right. But the majority of our political persuasions, I think, are because of the way we were raised, because of how we um, saw life being lived by people we respect and, and look up to. So the liberal is more sympathetic to government than the conservative. The conservative is skeptical. They're, they're not as enthusiastic about government taking on this role or this responsibility. But, but I want to go deeper than conservative liberal because I think we stumbled on is government, has government become a solution or an enabler? I mean, tell me a problem in American society or culture, financial, um, whatever, culturally, society. I mean, tell me a, a situation that government decided to really get in the middle of that's gotten better. I mean, the war on poverty. I mean, it was standard reason if the government declared a war on poverty, there wouldn't be as many people in poverty, right? But there's more. The war on drugs. I mean, it was standard reason if the big, bad federal government declared a war on drugs, I mean, we'll have less addicts, less drugs, less charges, less overdoses, less deaths. Not the case. I mean, I'm waiting for a liberal to call in and try to explain. I'm not saying the government's never done anything good. That's not what I'm arguing. Give me a problem. I'll, I'll tell you one thing. The interstate highway system. Yeah. The government was successful in solving a problem of personal transportation in an automobile. We can get from point A to point B faster now because the government invested in an international, excuse me, a, um, a national highway bill that included constructing in interstates all over the good old U.S. of A. So the government helped solve that problem. I mean, it took seven hours to get from here to Atlanta. Now, it takes four hours. Why? Because we don't have to go through 30 little small towns. We don't have to slow down to 40 miles an hour. Time, value, money. So, so I mean, I, the, the government, it's not a complete and total failure when it comes to identifying a problem and creating a solution. I, I think on a related note, I just thought of this when you said that, air traffic control. I mean, it's it's necessary, and they generally do a, a great job. But if keep, I were going to be the skies safe, but if I were going to be the libertarian, mm-hmm. what if we didn't have bureaucrats controlling traffic, but rather the private sector? What if the U.S. government signed a an overreaching contract with one company, the Josh Air Controllers of uh, of the world, and Josh provided America with you know however many air traffic controllers it needs? Yes, I mean, I understand what you're saying, yeah. and you're exactly right. Yeah, I was just answering your question, but, but, but you, I see, I, I, mean, I, I know what you're but, saying but as well. To, to your point, there are military bases. There are no-fly zones. There are, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I'll agree with that. The, the, what, I'm, what I'm talking about is we've, we've taken these monumental moments, these monumental issues in America, um, a hurricane, an earthquake, a tornado, um, air traffic control, interstate highway system, and we've tried to solve some of the basic fundamental problems in America that I think human beings are better off solving. Ken, Josh, and Rev can't solve um, interstate traffic. I mean, th- th- we can't do that. I mean, we, you know, the government, we've got to look to the government. I mean, even the most ardent conservative has to accept that government is responsible to some degree. Josh and Ken and I, I mean, we can't build an army, right? I mean, the, the government's going to do some things, and that's 
Uh, national defense would be another solution-oriented. Uh, we've not been attacked. Why? Because we've got a big, bad army. Why do we have a big, bad army? Because the government made big investments in a big, bad army and convinced recruits to come on board and offer them benefits and paychecks and, and careers and whatnot. So we've got I – mean, there would be another example of the government doing okay. I mean, I don't think it's been perfect by any stretch, but, but the private sector can't build an army. I mean, the private sector can't build an interstate highway system. The private sector can't control how many airplanes in the air at a time? 3,000. I mean, I think I've read before that on any given Monday morning, there are over 3,000 airplanes traveling, mm-hmm. you know, from sea to shining sea. Uh, I mean, we can't do that. But, but we, we've, taken, we've taken those ambitious, aspirational projects and, 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 and try to convince America that we can do the same thing for hungry children who don't have a meal before they go to school. We can do the same thing for, you know, the, the requirements necessary to get a gun or to get, you see where I'm headed. Yeah, see, your original question was name something that government has done well. And so that we came up with a few examples. But I, th- I think if you ask the question, how many things government does that they do terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible, then I mean, you could come up with a much longer list. God awful. And and that doesn't even ask ask the question: Should they be doing it to begin with? It's like, what do they do that they do a terrible job? Let, let's ask this hypothetical: If Josh Rev and I were given the opportunity to vote for a a penny tax across America that was going to fund an interstate highway system, the three of us would be skeptical. Allow government to do that? I mean, you know, we would. I mean, our nature, the three of us, our nature is, I don't know, man. I mean, another penny, then they want another and another and another and another. And the highway system probably won't ever get built. It won't be any good what it does. Get built, they won't maintain, it won't do this, and won't do that. You see what I mean? That would be our natural mm-hmm. impulse because we're fairly conservative guys. The liberal would go, oh, yeah. I mean, if, if they could do it, I wonder if they could do it twice as good with two pennies right. or three pennies or four pennies because, once again, I mean, the, it's, it's almost like the liberal – has no expectation of government. It's it's almost like, okay, we have this scorecard, and it applies to everything and everybody except government. And government gets a pass on all these things. So, so we'll ask ourselves this. Isn't the government hypocritical in doing, if the government has created a program, and I'm talking about non-means-tested welfare, if the, pro, if the government has created, and there's no denying this, there's no denying this, that young women are paid to have children and not be married. I don't care how liberal you are. You can't say that I'm wrong. Young women receive financial benefit from the American taxpayer to have a kid and not get married. So you're incentivizing young women to have a kid, to not get married, to have another kid, to not get married, have another kid to not get married. And then on the other side, you're going to demand the taxpayer to feed that child because mom can't. You're creating the problem. I mean, the government is enabling young women to have kids and receive financial benefit, especially if they don't get married. I mean, it's it's kind of a game. I mean, it's a little bit. Not just enabling, incentivizing. Very much so. I mean, you know, there's story after story after story of a guy wanting to marry a girl. The girl says, I don't want to marry you because if I marry you, my benefits get cut. I don't get anywhere near as much money if I marry you. It's almost like liberals believe those are movie caricatures. There aren't real people that do that. People don't. There are millions 
There are millions of young females who know exactly what they're doing when they get pregnant, when they have a child, when they apply for benefit, when they don't marry the father of that kid, and they do it again and again and again and again. So government creates that problem by incentivizing single parenthood so the single parent doesn't have the ability to care for that kid, so they get a school breakfast program funded by the taxpayer. The good old taxpayer is always on the hook. I mean, how does the government explain that? I mean, how do you defend? I mean, if you're liberal and you're sympathetic to government and you believe government is part of the solution, defend that. You created the problem. You are the reason that young children are going to school hungry in the mornings. And because you created that problem, you go back to the taxpayer to, to, to solve the problem or create a temporary solution to the problem that you, um, that you created. Let's go to the phones. Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. Good morning, guys. Hey, the one thing we come up with the government did was the interstate highway, uh, interstate you know, system. But if you go back to the time that that was being built, there's countless businesses that went out of business and people went out of work because where you used to have to stop along the way or go through a little town and see something you like, now you just whiz by it. And that entire town dies. So did they improve things? They did for some, but they, the cost was it had a human element. It put a lot of people out of business. I think it's staggeringly funny that the left goes, we should emanate uh, – uh, nature, you know, use the, the sun and use the wind and the water and just go by nature. But nature teaches us that if you leave the animals out there alone, they hunt for their food, they dig for their food, they survive. The weak ones die off and the stronger ones are promoted with life. But when it comes to people, we promote the weakest, we reward the weakest, we incentivize the weakest, and then we're surprised that we get people with free phones, free money, long fingernails and lashes that just do nothing but have kids that they don't have the ability to take care of. And we're shocked with that. I, I never understand the left's brain. Bert, what do we do with the weakest of humans? I mean, if Bert well, were king of the world, what would Bert do with the weakest of humans? Oh, you know, you know what I want would never pass. Government should not be in the personal business at all. It's sad. It's frustrating, but just like they go, oh, they can't take care of that kid. We should take that kid and take care of it. Well, the facts are more kids die in the hand of government than they do in the supposed abusive parent that wasn't taking care of them. It is a tragedy. It really is that people would die, absolutely. But we would become, as a country, stronger, more fit, more capable, better thinkers. We would become a better country and the weakest of us literally would die off, and you wouldn't have, you know, over fifty percent of us now just riding in the cart while someone else pulls it. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that, Josh. For some reason, I think you'd give a an extreme answer to this question, but I'm asking anyway. What should <laughs> America do with the weakest of its people? Uh, would throw them in the ocean be extreme? No, I'm kidding. Um, I. So what to do with the the weak uh, the what we we consider to be weak the non contributors? What does an, a civil society mm -hmm. owe to its weakest members? 
the I'll, members that can't, for whatever reason, take care of themselves. Okay, so if if someone really can't take care of themselves, or if so, so I disagree with Bert, where the government should stay out of people's personal business, uh, and completely. I think that's that's part of the reason we're in this situation in the first place is because government came became so removed. I do think that this government can't handle it, but a government probably could. So I would say in an ideal society, if you have people that are just too incapable, whether that's physically or in in, in I'm talking our, about physical deficiencies or mental deficiencies. I mean, they have a physical deficiency that disallows them from being able to take care of themselves. They're in a wheelchair. They're, they're paraplegic. I mean, okay. They're quadriplegic. Um, what does a civil society owe to that person or they've got uh, right. serious mental issues? So I'd say there's many different kinds of disabilities, so there's no one-size-fits-all answer. But, for example, I think we have a huge problem in America right now where people who are fully capable of working aren't doing that. We they are know taking that. advantage I mean, we, of the but, system. But we know that. I mean, that's not a newsflash. Right. So what I would say is, ideally, we would identify who those people are and make them work, whether they wanted to or not. We would find them a job, and if they refuse to go, they'll be arrested. And then in the prisons, they will be made to work on construction sites, and prisoners will be forced to work. They'll be forced to contribute to society, whether they like to or not. So in the case of someone who's in a wheelchair, so someone who's in a wheelchair, uh, who who is only in it because their legs don't work, there's a lot of remote jobs that they can do. They can they can be, you know, the government can aid in helping them find and get qualified to do something along those lines. Someone who is who is a quadriplegic, uh, that might be a case where the government may have to subsidize their living. And, and you're okay and, with that. And I'm okay with that, but that is only acceptable in the most extreme cases like that. So someone in a wheelchair, they have to work. Someone who has Down syndrome, they have to work. That's that's what I think is acceptable. Fair enough. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. We're all confused to some degree because we have no choice but to be confused because we're trying to find a hybrid between a free market and socialism. I mean, the, the majority of us, and I'm not saying the majority of everybody in America, I have no idea, but the majority of people who listen to conservative radio, they have the heart of a capitalist. They believe in the free markets. They believe that America allows excesses, and those excesses create successes. But on the other side of that, the excesses can create failures. So we, we're, we're kind of we're nostalgic about that because that's who we are. I mean, that's, that's the American story. But over the last, well, since the New Deal, we, we try to find, a, okay, there's a little leak in the there's a little leak in the free market dam over there. How about go put that socialist plug in it? You know, the, the, the market-based economy made a mistake over there. How about, mm, how about take that socialist plug yes. and kind of plug you in that? You have people argue we're already socialist. Well, I mean, that, that's the point I'm trying to make. We're, we're, we're probably more socialist than we're willing to admit. And we're trying to hang on to these principles of market-based economies and, and the free market of Milton Friedman. And we step out of this studio when we step into an America that is about half socialized. And I told Reb, I've read a lot about the Scandinavian countries because I'm thinking about where I'd want to leave. I mean, I'm Bruce Springsteen. So, you know, if, um, 
if Biden gets elected again, I'm moving to one of these Scandinavian countries. <laughs> well, some of these countries, I mean, they, they're, they're free, but they aren't. They, um, I mean, the government will say, hey, we're passing an ordinance that says you can't build anything more than a 13 square foot house. And they're like, oh, okay. We have been a story of excess. I mean, America celebrated its success. I didn't say success. The excesses lead to great successes. I mean, name a great innovation or invention that America's fingerprints aren't on since the end of the Second World War. Really since the end of the Revolutionary War. I mean, there's been more wealth created, more prosperity, more advancement for mankind, more eradication for disease, more uplifting people from poverty, more improvement of quality of life in America than any place on this planet. And second ain't close. But we decided at some point in time, Rev, and probably the last hundred years, to find a little bit of socialism. And, you know, when the market fails, then uh, stick that socialist plug. I, I, I know it's not quite capitalist enough, but I mean, you see, and, and, and now we find ourselves, we're talking about having kids a second ago, young, we find ourselves kind of half pregnant. I mean, it's impossible to be half pregnant. I get that. But, but in, I'm talking about in, in just illumination's sake. For it's, it's, you know, we're kind of pregnant with socialism. We're kind of pregnant with the free market. And that gets complicated. That gets extremely complicated. And, and I'll tell you what's happened to me personally. As I've got older, I just kind of say, okay, that's the way things are. I mean, that's the way it is. You know, um, I, I told Rev during the break, a couple of breaks ago, to me personally, as I've read and tried to understand, I was with two guys yesterday, and we're talking about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and it gets to politics. And I started saying, well, guys, here's how, you know, and one of the guys says, well, I mean, you read it all the time, man. I mean, I don't think you're any smarter than I am, but you read that stuff all the time. I listen to what you say. When you say these sorts of things, I, I just, I think we've gotten ourselves to a place where comfortable ain't going to cut it. We're going to have to live a period of time extremely uncomfortable. In contrast with our government, in contradiction with our government. I, I don't want to say in conflict with our government because I have no idea what that looks like. And, and I know that that sounds Alex Jones-ish or, or Glenn Beckish. But I believe that more and more people are beginning to realize that we have gotten so far off the rail. And I'm talking about a constitutional-oriented government. I'm talking about a free market economy. That, that we're going to have to have some uncomfortable moments in our future if we're going to resurrect what our founders genuinely intended America to be. It's not my version of America. I mean, I want people to clearly understand. It doesn't matter what I want. I mean, we are a constitutional republic, or we aren't. And, and the Constitution basically begs the American citizenry to never let government get but so big. And we failed. I mean, we failed. We failed miserably because life got tough. And government came along and had the capacity to fix some things. And we let it fix things. Instead of enduring the hardships that come along with a free people, we decided to let government let us off the hook. And I, I'm telling you, in my life, and I've read a lot about this, our world changed in 2008 with quantitative easing. And I know when I say 08, the majority of people say that's when we bailed the banks out. That's when the housing market collapsed. That's when subprime lending became 
kind of, kind of um, terminology that everybody understood, uh, you know, synthetic derivatives and exotic financing. I mean, that, that's the story. Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and Citibank and, and Bank of America and AIG and Merrill Lynch and Wachovia. Remember them? I mean, they used to be. But, but I still believe that the biggest factor in 2008 was the Fed introduced quantitative. They toyed around with it a little bit, but they all of a sudden said, hey, we're in a bad place, and this is pretty wild, but we can try it. And we tried it, and we liked it. We loved it because it was basically enjoying the benefit of capital spent today without concern of what the payback looked like one of these days. And we've lived 16 years of our life in, 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 a, in, a, in, in, in the most make-believe world imaginable. I mean, I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. To me, a trillion is a supernatural number. It's almost unfathomable. What, what is a trillion dollars? I mean, if you really try to grasp, and you can Google a trillion seconds, a trillion minutes, a trillion days, it's mind-boggling. But we're going to spend, I mean, we're February 1, we're going to spend a trillion dollars from January to December that we don't have, and there seems to be very little concern about it, what its impact or, or consequences will be. And, and I just think we're going to live some very uncomfortable moments if we're going to genuinely and truly get back to a constitutional republic. Let's go to the phone. Linda in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Linda. Good morning, everyone. I, um, lately, I, I wouldn't listen to y'all when I'm at a client's house because I know that your racist radio show upsets them. But these ladies this morning have had a great laugh listening to y'all they really have enjoyed your show this morning and we all coming down on the gentleman that 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 says you should go to jail if you don't have any money because that's why they left england that was one of the reasons they left england and my ladies here they they have parents that were sharecroppers that was a prison because you always owed you could never get up get up get up on your feet that was a prison and really, I don't. I, I think there's never going to be a way that we're going to solve this problem. Um, I know for myself, now that I'm a widow, I can't collect widow benefits because I'm working. And if I make too much, they're going to punish me for making too much money. So I can't even apply for widow's benefits. Although I probably will die before I can get that Social Security that my husband worked for. So we're in a kind of conundrum. I don't know if there's ever going to be a way for me to figure out what, how much socialism we should have, but we know we have to have education. And if you pro-life, then you have to be pro-doing whatever it needs for children to have a decent life. As the Constitution says, liberty and justice for all, we have to figure it out. There has to be some compromise in the middle. But you have a great day and know that my ladies really enjoyed this this morning. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. Very kind of you. Appreciate you um, introducing this um, craziness to the ladies that um, that you're with this morning. I, I want to say, because I think Linda, she, she kind of hit on a point there. I believe the beauty in America, and I guess this would be somewhat of a campaign speech, if America affords opportunity, and, 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 and I, I believe personally 
that the American government today squelches opportunity. It inhibits opportunity. It makes it harder to be successful. I mean, unless you play the game. I mean, if you got a team of lobbyists, consultants, or lawyers, I mean, you know, it, it offers opportunities, rest assured. But if you don't, to make it in America today in business is more challenging than it's ever been. So if I were in Josh's world, if King Ken was in charge, I would make sure when I woke every every morning as the custodian of the American dream, it would be rich with opportunity. Are we passing policies that provide people opportunity to be the best they can be? I mean, that, that really goes back to the foundation of the revolution, of the Revolutionary War. I mean, the, 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 the colonists didn't believe they were afforded a fair opportunity. And they, you know, acted accordingly. And out of that came the freest nation. Well, let me back up. Out of that came a guiding document that was to lead to the freest people man had ever known, that offered more opportunity than man had ever known. So I never believed that Jefferson, when Jefferson sat down with, with Adams and Franklin and that, you know, committee that I think Adams may have signed the committee, Washington, I think, may have uh, said, hey, guys, you get together and, and draft the Declaration of Independence. I don't think they believed it was going to be perfect and without struggle. I mean, I think I mean, they were too smart for that. They understood mankind. Uh, they understood how bad man can be, how good man can be, how productive man can be, how destructive man can be. But I think when you really kind of sink your teeth into America, it's always been the land of opportunity. I mean, that, that's why, I mean, I saw this morning, a damn boat ran into the beach in San Diego. And before the boat stops, these five or six illegal immigrants are grabbing, you know, bags and running across the street and, and, and near Fisherman's Wharf. I'm talking about where they sell land by the square foot. I mean, that, you know, those people aren't fleeing America. They're coming to America. Um, that, that's our best. I mean, that's when we are at our best. When we genuinely believe, when you know, as as God fearing Americans, we wake up every day thinking we're going to get a better shake here than we do anywhere else in the world, and I think a lot of people question that now. I mean, I think there are many, many Americans. I would ask this: I mean, if you are a liberal and you don't have a problem with the debt, I mean, I'm not saying liberals drove the debt; conservatives have driven the debt as well. But liberals would argue, well, I mean, the government has to do these things, no matter what the cost is; it has to to do these things. Do you believe you're providing your grandkids more or less opportunity by committing them to 34, 35, 40, 45, 50 trillion dollars in federal debt? I mean, if you now, I mean that sincerely, because look, conservatives have their issues. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We've dropped the ball on a on a million ways. But but I, I do believe that that a liberal today who stands solidly behind spending money we don't have, because we've got to fund these programs to be solutions for Society has, I, I think you're, you're offering your kid and grandkid far less opportunity. And, you know, I guess short-sightedness would be uh, the culprit there. 843, so I'll get off my high horse <laughs> and stop preaching and start talking about political issues that are timely and important. <laughs> but we're, we're basically rediscussing the age-old question. The me, role of government. Yeah, the, the fundamental role of government. I think what we've done is couch the argument, is government a solution or is government an enabler? And I think government can be both. I mean, I think in rare situations, government can be a part of solving a problem. But its track record over the past 50 or 60 years 
tells me it's been far more of an enabler for people to abuse the rights and privileges of um, of man governing man than it has been solution based. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Joe in Florence. Morning, Joe. Good morning, guys. Um, just a, a comment or two. I think what we're dealing with is a an, an incredibly delicate balancing act, and and I really think that's the strength of America. That when one side pulls too far, the other side kind of brings it back to a, a healthy balance. And I think the left has kind of made the first move by moving so far left that I think uh, you guys are right in the sense that I think we need to do something radical to kind of bring things back to a healthy center. Um, When the Democrats weren't pulling so far left, we didn't have to pull so far right to bring it back. But I think the reason radicality is needed, if that's a word, (laughs) is because of of the, the first move they made. And when it comes to, you know, priorities and everyone's different priorities, um, I might be very supportive of, of giving kids school lunches, but if the left is giving illegal aliens, illegal immigrants, if they're giving them so much free stuff, then we don't have money to give deserving kids free lunches. And if we're giving kids free lunches, and that means that my taxes are so high that I've got to give my kids beans instead of chicken, then I'm going to draw the line there. So I really think we do have to dig in our heels. And if it, if it requires deportation of people taking advantage of the, the freebies that the, the left is giving the immigrants, or if we have to consider some sort of, of uh, sterilization of men and women who have too many kids that they can't take care of, then I think we at least have to look at some of those ideas to counterbalance the what I consider crazy radical ideas from the left. So uh, I, I know I missed a little of the, the morning session, but I just wanted to, to kind of bring bring it around to that point of view. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Um, well stated. And I want to be clear: I am not for starving children. Period. I mean, I, I'm I'm conservative, somewhat of a libertarian. I can drift off to anarchy, but I'm not I'm not a hateful man. I'm not a spiteful man. I'm not someone that takes any joy in, in, in a family not working hard and struggling. I mean, I don't take any joy in that. Um, I was raised different than that. But, but I also believe that if the government is responsible for creating a problem by enabling young women to have children and be financially incentivized, and then on the other side, they can't take care of the kids, so we need to have some lunch or, or breakfast programs, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, not about, it's not about hungry children. It's really not about single parents. It's about government being an enabler. I mean, they, they believe it, it's, it's solving a problem. Kids are going to school hungry. we got to fix that. Okay, but let's go back and see why kids are coming to school hungry. You know why kids are coming to school hungry? Because people are having kids who don't have any business having kids. You know why people are having kids who don't have any business having kids? Well, I mean, the, the, the human frailty. I mean, the, you know, the fallen man, and I'm talking literal, not figure, obviously with women, uh, but it is 2024, and, you know, maybe a dude can have a baby here uh, before long. Some people but but no, it's about the government enabling things and then trying to shirk the responsibility by saying, you know how those evil Republicans are. I mean, they, you know, starving children don't bother them as long as they've got gas in their Mercedes or, you know, the, the, the pool is clean at their beach house. 
I mean, that's kind of the narrative that, that we have to deal with at times. And I'm just totally, totally, totally unconvinced that that's, um, that that's necessary. It, the government has enabled young women to have kids. There, there's no denying that. I mean, I can go through, I can go through article, I can go through statute, I can go through policy. I can show you time after time where the government said you made a bad decision, but you're not going to be held responsible for that bad decision. Here's another government program. Here's another government appropriation. And then one day we wake up, Rev, and children are coming to school hungry, and we kind of scratch our heads and say, wow, we got a problem in South Carolina. We need a solution. So the government's basically being asked to solve the problem it created. And that's a vicious cycle. And that goes back to what I'm arguing. I don't think you can fix this with politics as usual. I don't think you can fix this with business as usual. I think it's time to be extremely radical in reorienting. I mean, that's my reorienting the mindset of our federal government. Could I add something? Sure you can. I want to say that I I agree with you. I don't think that uh, I know the kind of stuff I was proposing earlier is very radical, and it sounds a lot like the government dictating absolutely everything. But I do agree that a lot of the problems we're facing you know, you know, everything comes is downstream stream from people's like hearts. And I think that um, America largely has lost the sense of community. You know, it, it wasn't an issue whether, you know, if someone's if a woman who didn't work, if her husband died, well, she would be taken care of by her family, by by her neighbors her church. E- exactly. But but we have just lost this sense of us, which, again, it's like, how do you fix that? Very complicated question. Well, and, and Josh, the, the, the component that is always critically necessary, there's got to be some degree of trust. Right. I mean, there's got to be some degree of, okay, Dave Baker has had something happen in his life that requires a special assistance, and we need to rally around Dave. Well, all of a sudden, the public, the general public say, I don't know, man. I mean, the Rev could be hiding that money <laughs> under his mattress. You know, we're so skeptical. Mm-hmm. And look, I feed into that frenzy. I mean, there is, I'll, I'll stand guilty as charged. I drive divisiveness. I drive. I mean, it, I, 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 don't, I don't deny that. I accept responsibility for some of the divisive things I say on this airwave. But I've been asked to do a job that requires me giving my opinion. And the reason I think we've been successful in this marketplace, ratings just came out, we were highly successful in this marketplace, is... People think we're authentic. People they may disagree at times. They may think we're off the reservation at times. But they always believe that we say what we feel. We say what we believe. We don't screen calls. We don't solicit certain interviews from certain people to make sure, you know, the wind's in our sails and, and diminish other people's opinion. We're not going to do that. We'll never, ever, ever do that. But I think, Josh, the part that is essential to this common good you're talking about, a belief that we are, somewhat humanly connected one to another, there's a lack of trust. And how do you regain trust? To me, you regain trust by demonstrating competency. And, and I just don't trust the government. And why don't I trust the government? What have they done to earn my trust? What has the government told you that has come to out, turned out to be exactly the way they told you it would be? Back to the question you asked last hour. Well, I mean, that's, and we could do weeks worth of shows on the trustworthiness or not of our federal government. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.